Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Bruce Schofield about his new book titled The Nature of Astrology, History, Philosophy, and the Science of Self-Organizing Systems. Uh, so hey, Bruce, welcome to the show. Thank you. Hi. Yeah, thanks for joining me today, and congratulations on the release of the book. I literally just finished reading it this morning before we did this interview, and um, I'm honestly legitimately pretty blown away, so I'm excited to talk to you about it today. And uh, I first just wanted to say like congratulations, because I realize this book is kind of like your magnum opus, I think. And I, I not, not that I didn't expect that going into it, but I didn't really expect to read like almost like the sum, summation of a person's life work in astrology to a certain extent um, to be in there. And I realize it's not everything you've ever done in astrology, but certainly there was a, a tone to it that seemed like you were trying to make this like a, a really great book. Well, I, I was trying to answer the question that I've had for about 60 years now, which is, what is astrology? And, you know, I've approached it from a lot of different angles. And I thought, you know, before I started, you know, falling apart physically or, or possibly mentally, uh, I needed to get something written. And uh, the pandemic helped a little bit. I was able to get more done then. So nice. I'm glad I, I got it off my chest, you know, and it's out there. Um, I still have other other thoughts as well, but I was primarily trying to answer the question that I've had for so long. Like, you know, what is astrology? How did, how did you know, what is it? How did we get there? You know, why is it, uh, you know, marginalized? Those, yeah. those are big questions. Yeah, and you did, you, the book is like roughly divided, is divided into three specific parts. Right. Um, and could you like just briefly summarize what those three different parts are? Yeah, they're 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 kind of standalone in in some ways. You know, you probably could make three books out of it. But mm -hmm. the first part is is um, you know trying to show that you know what astrology is measuring is uh, pretty much the same thing as what some of the other sciences, particularly biology and uh, geosciences, are trying to measure as well. Um, I have, right. uh, you know, an account of my own experiments with astrometeorology, and, um, you know, I try to bring, bring the reader into a, uh, you know, a way of thinking scientifically about astrology. Yeah, and it seems like one of the things that's really unique about your book, and, and right, right away from chapter one you get into it, is um, contrary to the prevailing trend over the past two or three decades, um, you explicitly try to argue that there for for some sort of causal mechanism behind astrology, and that and that astrology, uh, you open the book basically talking about a number of different um, ways in which the Earth itself and its inhabitants are influenced by different things going on in the um, solar system or in the universe, and it seems like through that you try to start making a case that perhaps there's um, something then that could make room for some sort of causal mechanism in astrology? Yeah, I, I'm not really arguing that astrology is entirely, or, uh, or even, I'm, I'm not saying that astrology is, is, can be based on physical mechanisms, but I am pointing out there are plenty of physical mechanisms we already know about that kind of fit that bill. I'm putting that out there. Uh, I'm not taking um, a physicalist position. You know, not, I'm not necessarily a materialist. I'm not taking an ideal, uh, idealist position that the universe is all consciousness. I'm basically saying, I don't know. 
I'm really more of a naturalist, you know, that I'm, I'm the kind of guy that's out there studying what's around me and, you know, trying to see it as, you know, all part of one larger scheme. Right. And, but uh, yeah, you're, you're but, right. There does seem to be, a, it does start off in a way that would imply that there are physical mechanisms to astrology because there well, are quite a few. Well, and also because later in the book, you, you explicitly go out of your way to reject the model of astrology that tries to contextualize it or, or view it within the context of divination. It's become right. so popular over the past mm -hmm. three decades through the work of uh, Jeffrey Cornelius to a major extent, but also some other astrologers that have followed him. And so I think, I guess that's why I got the impression that you were trying to look at the other side and you're trying to present um, a case for a more naturalistic view of astrology that, that views it as like a natural property of the cosmos rather than something that's purely linked to um, religion or divination or magic or, or other things like that. Yeah. Um, did you notice that my image is now frozen? I can't seem to move. My, I can move my neck in this reality here, but not in the. Anyway, yeah. In in regard to the the uh, idea that astrology is divination, I just think it's it's a counterproductive idea. Uh, it's you know divination is not really explained except maybe in the context. Oh, look, I'm moving again. Except maybe in the, maybe in the context of uh, Neoplatonism or some kind of Hermeticism, um, it's you know it, to me it's like it's that's too easy of an answer. It gets you off the hook. You know, it's divination. We don't you know we uh, don't need to really explain what divination is. You know, and I think one of the things I say is it, that what people call divination is largely the activity of the subconscious and which we know a little bit about, um, intuition and uh, maybe some extrasensory perceptions, you know, could be added to that. I, I, what I'm really trying to say is that astrologers have faced this issue of what is astrology for a long time, and, and in modern times, um, the uh, explanation as divination, I think, is, is a weak one. That's all, all right. I'm really saying. I think you also um, sort of give a similar, albeit slightly lighter treatment to synchronicity as like an explanatory mechanism for astrology. And I think you call it like a non-explanation for astrology or a non-mechanism at one point. Yeah. And I also say that Jung dropped it himself. He was going to publish on it. And then we heard about some of the work that I think uh, John Nelson and maybe Jane Blizzard and a few others were doing with planetary alignments around the sun, you know, uh, correlating with solar storms and radio interference, that sort of thing. And he kind of dropped it. Yeah. I mean, I think I did a previous episode with Kieran LeGrice where we explored how, like most astrologers, Jung entertained a number of different theories for how astrology worked during the course of his life. And in the end, had at least like 10 different theories that he entertained at different points. Yeah. Yeah, and he hung around with with, with some uh, physicists, Pauli and a few others, probably, and you know. So he and he was a scientist. You know, he was he was uh, looking for answers and not you know you know it's when when you're doing that you don't really jump on any one bandwagon or another. You know, you you keep your mind open to different things. Right. So you know, the, so the explanation of, of you know synchronicity as as an explanation, I think, is really not much better than the Stoics' explanation of sympathy.
Mm, sure. Now, so, it's, it's, it's an interesting idea, but where's the evidence? Mm. Yeah, so I just want, so to circle back though, um, your book is unique to me because you're one of the only major astrologers I've seen in recent times that is arguing that there may be some sort of mechanism behind astrology that or is not purely- Or at least some of it. Or at least some of it. Yeah, because, yeah. okay, so that maybe that's- And I make that clear. Maybe that's how we should approach it is that you do set up and try to revive the ancient distinction that there may still be some validity to the medieval distinction between natural astrology and, and judicial astrology. And, and maybe that was your goal with the first few chapters is to set up some instances where there's genuine um, celestial influences on earthly events, especially on um, biology, on weather, and other natural systems in, on earth. Yeah, I, 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 I like to make that distinction anyway. I mean, I think it's a good one. Um, you know, one of my big arguments in the books is I think astrologers ought to get, get rid of this idea that astrology is nothing more than a practice. I mean, I think that's, that's really counterproductive. It's a subject. You know, if you don't think it's a subject, you know, what, what's going on here? So, you know, like medicine, you know, there's, there's a practice, and then there's theory, and then there's research, and then there's a history. You know, and I think astrology is the same. Psychology is like that as well. Most subjects are like that, but but um, subjects like psychology and medicine and astrology are big on practice. I mean, that's you know that's a huge part of it. But in the in the astrological community today, of people that call themselves astrologers, ninety nine point nine percent of them think that astrology is nothing but more than a practice, and then they go on and argue whether it's a science or an art. And to me, that's, you know, ass backwards. Sure. So you point out, you, you emphasize in the book how the majority of astrologers are practitioners of the subject, but that yeah. there's not, because it doesn't have, for example, institutional support, right. yeah. there's not a lot of um, focus on broader, for example, like scientific or statistical research, um, or even to a certain extent that broader attempts to to provide a new philosophical and cosmological context for astrology or, or to create a new overarching paradigm for it that uh, meets up with modern science and other contemporary views about the world and the cosmos, that those are sort of few and far between? Yeah, the, the lack of institutions is a terrible thing because, you know, if you want to do research, you're not going to get paid for it. That's what it comes down to. So, if you want to make a living at astrology, if you're, you know, like I was, you know, when I was younger, I was very interested in it. And I realized that to sustain that interest, I needed to practice it. And so I did that. You started a, a, you know, consulting business and went on for a long time. And I, you know, it was very satisfying, but I always wanted to know these other things. And, uh, you know, I would break it down in, into basically two categories um, that could use institutional support theory and, and uh, research. And theory could be overarching, but it could just be a hypothesis. And a hypothesis is great because then that guides research. And then when you get into research, there's different ways of doing that. Um, statistics is usually applied, but, you know, it, there, there may be other ways of, uh, of doing it. I mean, you know, certainly correlation studies go on all the time. You know, pu you know publishing a list of famous horoscopes was the original way of doing astrology research, anecdotal evidence. But there, you know, there may be other ways of going about it. But those two areas, I think, really 
could use uh, some help. And I, and other people recognize that. I, I, organizations like NCGR and ESAR were founded because of that, you know, that um, recognition that there needed some, you know, to be some attention paid to these topics. Yeah, and I think that's really important because that's something you emphasize is how in the 1960s and 70s, there was much more excitement and um, a feeling of potential in terms of astrological research. And, and astrologers were more interested, especially in attempts to validate astrology scientifically um, and even set up in some instances organizations that were specifically supposed to be geared towards that, such as the International Society for Astrological Research or the National Council for Geocosmic Research. Yeah. <clears throat> but um, at the same time period where there was that huge influx of younger astrologers into the community from the baby boomer generation who came of age in the, seven, in the 60s and 70s, and astrology became so wildly popular with the public, there was also the rise of major pushback against yeah. astrology from <laughs> skeptics and, and scientists to a certain extent, and you sort of document to a certain extent in the book the history of some of that and how that sort of squashed some of the enthusiasm, at least in the astrological community, for pursuing scientific research of astrology. Oh, yeah, it was terrible. You know, it was, uh, astrology went from being pretty respected in the 70s to, you know, by the 80s, uh, it, it was on the bottom shelves of the bookstores right after tarot cards. I mean, it really lost a lot of credibility and status. And I think that was because the, uh, the self-appointed pit bulls of science that, you know, that call themselves skeptics, uh, you know, went at it. You know, they, it, it was astrology that, you know, largely created the committee for this, you know, uh, um, for the investigation of the claims, uh, you know, what, what is it, PSYCOP, Committee for the Scientific Investigation of the Claims of the Paranormal, something like that. Right, that that was a result of uh, you know uh, fear of astrology, right? Astrophobia. Right. Well, and wasn't Psychop par partially founded as a direct? Wasn't one of their first tests to to attempt to replicate supposedly Gokland's studies yeah. of astrology? So therefore, and they cheated. Right. That's one of the great sort of like terrible incidences that <laughs> happened, which was the they they initially replicated his study. But they were so convinced ideologically that astrology couldn't be true that they were convinced that there must be a flaw. So they held back releasing their results, basically. And eventually, one of the skeptics, one of the founders of the organization, was so disgusted with what they were doing that he sort of wrote an article, um, sort of putting out everything out and sort of explaining exactly what had happened and how terrible that was from the perspective of the skeptics. Yeah, Star Baby with a small S and a capital T. Yeah, it has Rollins. Yeah, yeah he, and he published it in Fate magazine. Uh, do you remember that magazine? Uh, I don't because I was born in like 1984. Yeah. So a lot of this is like yeah. a little bit, a little bit. I was more, watch, I was more into like uh, Ghostbusters and stuff yeah. like that in the 80s than reading scientific journals at the time. Mm -hmm. But um, I did do a whole episode on this and Gokulin and his work with Ken Irving several years oh, yeah. ago. So people can definitely check that out for more. But that's a good example. So backing up a little bit, because um, that's something you go into a lot in this book, especially in the second part. You go into the history and the circumstances behind the decline of astrology in the Western world around the time of the scientific revolution. And then I think in the third book, you focus more on some of the recent history of scientific research into astrology 
um, and also talk about the future of astrology from your perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you attempt to cover, like you said, like basically this could be three separate books all in one, and that's why I kind of called it your magnum opus in some sense at the beginning. Um, could you explain a little bit your, your academic background? Because I think some of your prior academic work is tied in with at least the first part of the book, and especially like your PhD thesis, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is, uh, you know, in the 60s, I was, I was a kid of the 60s and playing in rock and roll bands in the early 60s. And um, I, I went to Rutgers, uh, started in 1966. But it was really hard to stay focused. I was a, a geology major, and then I then I changed to meteorology, and but mostly I was getting stoned and taking acid and playing rock and roll. So I dropped out, and then when I dropped out, I I went out to Haight Ashbury and I met all these people, and you know, and I was from New, uh, New Jersey, and people you know people in New Jersey, and some of them were into astrology. My my girlfriend was into astrology, and this. I had to check out. I mean, being a science guy in the, you know, originally, I had to check it out. And I, I read some books. I, you know, picked up some Alan Leo books and there was, um, you know, some safarial, you know, you know, old stuff. And I said, wow, the heck is this? You know, and I calculated my chart. I knew enough math to do it pretty easily. And that convinced me I had to go back to college because I had to figure out what this was. So I went back to Rutgers and I got a degree in history. I tried to focus on, um, actually tried to get an independent major based around astrology and Ken Nagus was going to support me, but the rest of the committee wouldn't. So I wound up taking a lot of history and philosophy courses and kind of sharpening up my mind. And then after another two, 10 years off, I got a master's degree and I took, focused on history of science. And I wrote a, a master's thesis on John Goad, who uh, shows up in the book quite a bit, uh, who was um, a 17th century writer who actually t- tested astrology and wrote a massive book on it. Um, you know, I, cons- I would consider it the, the, the most serious piece of astrological research uh, of the 17th century and, and maybe from up until then. Uh, even up up into the 19th century or so, um, and so I did. I worked on that, and then you know there was another gap or so, and I went went um, to UMass and got a PhD in geosciences, and I was lucky enough to have an advisor, Lynn Margulis, who was um, uh, evolutionist and microbiologist. Do you know anything about her? Um, I know she was married to Carl Sagan at one point. Yeah, that was her first husband. But she was associated with J- uh, James Lovelock and Gaia uh, theory. And she's most famous for her work on symbiosis as a driving force in evolution. So I was really lucky. I met her at a book signing. I was writing hiking guides. And uh, we became friends and she recruited me. But to be around somebody like that is you know, it was a real stroke of luck. I met her when my solar arc Half solar arc sun was conjunct my Saturn. <laughs> so yeah, she's she was very intelligent woman and uh, you know very sharply focused. But she said, "Hey, if you do science, you can do astrology." And so I did my PhD thesis on uh, astrometeorology, and I took the idea out of uh, a book by Johannes Kepler called Tertium uh, Interveniens, third party intervening, mm-hmm. and I tested 
the Sun-Saturn aspects with weather and came up with uh, evidence that showed there was a correlation as, as far as the cause was concerned, that was more complicated. But so I have this academic background, but it, and there was at no point during that, those three episodes in my life was I, interested, it, was I concerned with making a living from the academic work. So I went into it with the idea of, okay, this is just a good way to learn. And, and it was great. I, I learned how other people learn. I learned a lot about other subjects. I learned a lot about uh, the social sciences. I mean, technically, my, my uh, major, my master's degree says uh, master's degree in social sciences from Montclair University, although mm. I focused on history and history of science. And, um, and then history and, at Rutgers, history and philosophy, and then um, geosciences and biology and microbiology and meteorology. Um, Cosm uh, climatology at UMass. So that's oh. all that comes through in the book. You can see it, and I, you know, I, uh, I see a lot of the subject matter in those terms, which I think is very helpful. Yeah, I think that's, and, and it's really interesting because then it allows you um, the ability to talk about and discuss like a wide degree of different scientific studies that have been done in some of these different fields that might even indirectly like relate to the question of astrology in some broader sense. Uh, and I want to get to that really quickly. Do you share your birth chart? Sure. What's your data? 72148, 7.59 a.m., New Brunswick, New Jersey. 7.59, is that from the birth certificate or is that rectified? That's rectified. Birth certificate said eight. It's even a, a little bit of change in there too. What house system do you use? Uh, porphyry, usually. I put okay. I put the uh, I use the real ascendant as the cusp of the first house. Yeah, but you know you can do whatever you want. Um, is it showing porphyry right now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. There we go. So mm -hmm. Leo, rising. Leo rising. Yeah. Saturn conjunct the ascendant. Rising Saturn conjunct the ascendant day chart. Sun in Cancer, Mercury in Cancer, Moon in Aquarius. I'm a big yeah. fan of that placement as a fellow Aquarius Moon. Uh, Venus conjunct Uranus and Gemini, and Jupiter in Sag. Yep. Cool. All right. Um, sorry for that digression. I just sometimes when I'm doing interviews like to be able to document that from the person themselves, mm -hmm. like what their birth data is yeah. as a it, form of data collection. And that's now AAA data. Yeah, you exactly. Got it from no, the horse's mouth. <laughs> right. It's not like yeah. I met a guy who knew yeah. a lady who met him at a conference who, yeah. you know, wrote it down on a piece of on a napkin or something like that. Um so so circling back, um, I want to talk before we move into like part two and part three, I want to go back to and understand better part of what you were talking about in the first two chapters of the book, where you really did spend a lot of time talking about different um, about the solar system, about the earth, and a different natural processes and ways in which there are different things like not just gravity, but electromagnetism that different studies have showed may influence uh, biological life on earth and other systems in different ways. Mm -hmm. um, what are some of the things that, that really you, know, you could talk about in terms of that that are kind of relevant in this discussion? Well, there's, there's a, a lot of, uh, you know, study in regard to solar and lunar influences. So if you just look at biology, a lot, 
marine organisms in particular are going to be sensitive to lunar fluctuations, you know, partly because it causes the tides, but, and the tides change, you know, hydrostatic pressure. But right. and, there's, and there's evidence that you, you can, you could, that the, they're responding to the light of the moon, uh, the gravity of the moon. There's all sorts of connections there. You know, there may be a transfer, you know, from the gravity of the moon to the depth of the water to the, you know, the phase of the moon to the amount of light that's coming through. But life is very sensitive to it. And, and some of that's been observed since, you know, ancient times about oh, yeah. how the, the moon affects the tides or how there's different uh, marine life that's affected by, by the moon yeah. in different ways. Yeah. It's an environment. One of the points I try to make, and I'm sure you've picked up on it, is that you know life evolves in a spatial environment, and that's what almost everybody talks about. If you take a course on evolution, they're going to talk about things like geographic isolation, you know, um, or competition from other species, or you know, changes in the environment itself, and so on. But there's a temporal environment. I mean, there's the alternation of day and night. There's the phases of the moon, and and there. Are are all sorts of fluctuations with solar cycles and um, orbital cycles that modulate the, the weather and the climate and so on. So this is a, a real thing. This is, this is a real environment. The rhythms of the temporal environment, you know, cannot be overlooked if you're going to try, if you're going to understand how life has evolved on this planet. And it, it is the case that life has internalized a lot of these movements and motions and cycles and built structures around them i mean the most obvious one is that we sleep at night and you know we're up during the day usually um and right. we have a probably about two or three hundred other circadian rhythms running off that one but there's there are lunar things and so on humans are you know more disconnected from nature these days so we may, may not show all the you know, consistently, all the rhythms that, that you know, potentially existed, um, you know, 200,000 years ago. Right. But that's really important points. Your point is that life evolves not just in, in a spatial context, but also in a temporal context. Yeah. And um, one of the ways that looking at the temporal context that life evolves could be through uh, different things that are going on in the, in the celestial environment. Since the celestial environment has always been one of the primary ways of measuring time or measuring yeah. uh, temporal states or temporal movements, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, I, I think these, you know, especially with cycles, these are like you know pegs in the in the flow of time, and organisms uh, learn to recognize them and remember them, and and then build structures around them, uh, right. You know, it, you know, the most obvious ones are, you know, things like reproduction, uh, you know, and, and metabolism, things like that. So let, let's go into some of that. Let's not take anything for granted in terms of the audience. Since audience, audience, let's just pretend doesn't know anything about what we're talking about, about the book. What are some other instances, even not human ones, of, like you said, that phenomenon of uh, life internalizing the sky? Yeah, well, the... the um, classic example would be the circadian rhythm, the alternation of day and night. And there was a long debate as to whether it were the organisms were actually reading the light and day, or there was just some kind of natural rhythm. And I've always seen this, this was a debate that went on for a long time. And uh, it was the 
called the debate between the exogenous and endogenous, you know, mechanism, circadian mechanism, mm -hmm. the outs outside or inside, right? And, uh, you know, the, the, re the answer is both are going on at the same time. But what has happened is that these um, clocks, you could call them biological clocks, uh, have evolved and they've evolved separately in different organisms at different times. So it's not one that was passed on and inherited. Uh, where in the cell, you have these special clock cells and they, uh, you know, produce a certain protein. Uh, and when the protein gets up too high, it turns off a function. And then uh, gradually that protein is absorbed. And when it gets too low, it turns back on. So it's a thermostat. So, you know, from single cells on up to complex, you know, megafauna like us, we have these cells that are basically replicating the cycle of day and night internally. And they're doing it with like a thermostat-like mechanism. And it sets a pattern. You can take somebody, they, they did these experiments where they would take people and put them underground for a month or longer and just leave all lights on and see what happened. And they would, mm -hmm. what's called free run. And they would settle into a pattern that was slightly... I think, uh, I'm not sure, I, mean, I think it was slightly more, well, actually it would vary, but I, I think in general it was maybe, it wasn't exactly 24 hours. Uh, it was near that. That's why circadian means a, approximately circa day, that sort of thing. So the, what that proved was that there was an internal mechanism that could clock this time that closely approximated, but not, didn't exactly equal the rotation of the earth. And further, the fact that it didn't equal it was actually a good thing because that allowed for phase resetting once the organism is exposed to the, you know, the source of the, uh, the timekeeper, in this case, day and night. So that's, a, that's the classic example of a structure that we all have in us and even single cells have. And it can, it can run with or without light, but it was obviously designed to you know, follow the, the uh, pattern of the day. And there's some cases, some studies for lunar things that are similar, but it's, it's not clear about that. The circadian cycle can also be used, is also used, particularly by plants, to uh, predict photo period, the length of day versus length of night that happens seasonally. And it's so sophisticated that even organisms at the equator can do that, even with the very subtle changes that occur there. But it can, they right. can do it. And, and the length of day and length of night, yeah. of course, is classically gets translated in astrology into something like the tropical zodiac. Where exactly. Photo period, yeah, yeah, is what it's called by biologists, but astrologers could say tropical zodiac. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and then one of the points you make in the book is that some of these different potential um, influences or, or ways in which some smaller organisms may be influenced by different things, not just like gravity, but I think you also mentioned the possibility of electromagnetism at a certain point, that life, um, so these smaller organisms, sometimes life can be sensitive to very minute changes in the environment. Um, but then when you go up the food chain, that if like little organisms are being influenced by certain things and, mm -hmm. and their behavior or certain things are being influenced by that. And then let's say like a, f a fish are hunting and, and eating those things, then it's affecting the, uh, the fish in a, in a certain way. 
and then whatever else is like feeding on the fish and everything else so that there's this like a chain reaction sort of effect that happens in terms of the environment or in terms of nature yeah that's true the the microorganisms get all excited and then small fish start eating them and then the big fish eat the small fish you know goes right up the chain there and they all become entrained on you know whatever that rhythm is and fishermen know it uh as uh moon rise moon set and then also sunrise and sunset but the fish will tend to bite more and you know it probably has something to do with uh the gravity of the moon stirring things up you know very small microorganisms doing that but we know that microorganisms and megafauna you know are responsive to the magnetic field you have these um bacteria called magnetotactic bacteria which are ex- extremely common they're all over the oceans and the lakes and whatnot and they um biomineralize these little little tiny chips of magnetite and they read the earth's magnetic field and align themselves accordingly to find their ideal location in the mud you know or in the water column but other organisms have birds navigate with that and turtles and uh cetaceans uh, there's some argument about whether people have it or not, but some people, there's been some studies that show that if you take kids out of the city blindfolded and put them in the woods, they can kind of figure out what direction, you know, it is back home, that that sort of thing. That's a really funny there, study. That's one of those funny areas of science of the things of like, we could test if there weren't like moral restrictions on certain <laughs> things, yeah, right. but that we we don't or can't just because you can't, you know, just round up some kids and just like let them that's go right. in the woods and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's, you know, every uh, few weeks I come across some weird study. I found one just when I was getting to the end of the book there about, you know, dogs aligning their body with the uh, magnetic field, you know, before they take a dump, you know, and uh, they they point in a certain direction. So they're obviously reading the magnetic field. Right. Or less grossly, like, uh, I think you also mentioned at one point that there's been an observation that sometimes animals will react around the time or sometimes shortly before earthquakes occur and that yeah. there's been speculation about them reacting to to different subtle things that are maybe not uh, that, that humans are not picking up but that you start seeing in in animals prior to to major um earthquakes happening yeah that's uh, in china they uh, uh pay a lot of attention to that have used that for earth, earthquake prediction but it is apparently true um, other people have looked at it. You know, the animals might sense, you know, if there's pressure building up in a fault, they might sense some kind of electrical change. A lot of times if you get quartz in the rock, say it's granite, and it's, there's a lot of pressure on it, 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 it could be something that's readable by the organism. But, you know, this all comes back to the idea that, you know, from cells on up, life is pretty sensitive to very subtle influences. Uh, electromagnetism is you know what we're talking about now it's all over the place and it comes in different you know um cycles and you know it depends uh, you know the moon is is modulating the uh, magnetic field around the earth you know the the solar wind hits the earth's magnetic field and stiffens it up and then the moon is going around that and that modulates it a little bit so there's all sorts of things that go on there was a right. guy um um, uh, what's his name, Zane? Uh, anyway, he he was interested in that and showed in a, a couple articles that were in the Mountain Astrologer years ago correlations between 
lunar aspects and very slight shifts in the Earth's magnetic field as recorded at certain stations. Okay. So that's really cool. And one of the things that springs up that you mentioned in the book at one point is that even though we, we think of space and we conceptualize it as empty, there's actually like a lot going on out there uh, in yeah. terms of our environment in the solar system. Yeah, they call it plasma now. You know, there's, there's all sorts of particles zooming around in space. It's not as empty as people thought it was. So it, this is a whole area that's just beginning to be explored. Exactly what effects it has on the Earth, you know, is another matter. Um, you know, and then there's, there's always gravity, although it's kind of a weak force compared to some of the others. But the study that I did that correlated weather uh, records with Sun-Saturn oppositions. Now, a Sun-Saturn opposition means, you know, looking at it geocentrically is that, um, you, you know, we see it as the Sun on one side and Saturn on the other side. You know, from the heliocentric position, it's Sun, Earth, Saturn. So basically that is when Saturn is closest to the Earth and it's, you know, in the Earth's annual orbit around the Sun. Anyway, so I took that I mean, I went through a lot of other things before I got to that and decided to focus on it. And I correlated it with uh, weather temperatures in different parts of the country and the world, really, and found that in certain sections, there was a drop in temperature pretty consistently. And I would stack these over, you know, over top each other, like 100 years of records. So I was able to show that that was pretty significant. And the, the, you know, I did this for my PhD thesis, and the, the committee was you know, kind of impressed by it. But how do you explain it? Now, I calculated what Saturn's gravitational influence would be relative to the sun's. And it, it, you know, it's the, Saturn's is you know, uh, less by you know, four orders of magnitude. It's much, much you know, um, lower than the, the gravitational effect of the sun. But some people have told me that that was not that bad. You know, that was something. And, you know, you begin to wonder that, you know, maybe these very small forces do account for something. And, and maybe in this case, it's the weather system that we're looking at. And what I found is the effect was very strong when Saturn and the sun were near the equinoxes. And when they're near the equinoxes, they're due east and west. And so they're at 90 degrees to the poles. And so maybe at that point, the gravity was such that it was enough to flatten the Earth's atmosphere out enough to push down a cold cell, and, and that would then distribute itself uh, you know, as it moves south, as it was drawn, you know, breaking down, moving towards the uh, warmer areas. So in other words, there might be a, a gravitational effect here that the weather can feel. The question is, well, can organisms feel that too? I don't, you know, right. Well, and before we even get there more broadly, though, you also spent a lot of time talking about um, how uh, gravity from some of the larger bodies in the solar st system, even though gravitation gravitational attraction drops off rapidly yeah. as distance increases, which is part of the issue with gravity as an explanatory mechanism for astrology that that skeptics and astronomers commonly bring up that. Um, the major players in the solar system in terms of the moon and the sun uh, and potentially other planets do have gravitational influences on natural processes on earth like potentially like earthquakes or, or volcanoes or other things like that yeah well there have been a few studies that have um, 
come up here and there that show you know planetary uh aspects with the sun and moon correlating with earthquakes or so but the the the, the best evidence that we have for something like the outer planets, the other planets having to do with Earth processes is in the Milankovitch or orbital cycles. Now, you know, you have to kind of step back and think in terms of deep time. This is what geologists and geoscientists do all, you know, the, a million years, you know, it's like the equivalent to a minute <laughs> in the scheme of things. But, you know, on that kind of a scale, the planets are playing a role in modulating the shape of Earth's orbit. And this has tremendous effects. It causes ice ages, causes you know huge changes in water level. Uh, you know you have the Mediterranean drying out like every twenty three thousand years. Cycle of precession did that. I don't know fifty times or something. And and there's there seems to be evidence that the Earth system, you know, which is atmosphere hydrosphere, lithosphere, all, and biosphere all interacting and entangled with each other, right? That that is picking up on these very, very subtle influences and at times becoming very entrained to one particular cycle. But then as that cycle breaks on, it loses that entrainment and maybe entrains on another one. So that's, this is, I think, a, an interesting way to think about how life on the planet reacts to these uh, you know, solar system motions that maybe it's not hooked up to one cycle all the time. Maybe it's shifting from one to the other or combinations right. of them. And isn't the like various, various, very center of the sun and Jupiter somewhere like just outside of the sun due to how massive Jupiter is in terms of its gravitational influence? Well, the very center of the, of the, uh, solar system is outside the sun sometimes yeah and jupiter does have a lot to do with it but so do the other planets mm, okay so uh, that seems relevant just in terms of our solar system in terms of the gravitational influences and then you're also talking about things like the solar wind or solar flares yeah and other like background radiation that's happening at different points yeah there's a, there's a lot going on you know what you know i'm glad you brought this up because the truth is, is that the planets are interacting on the sun so much that they yank it out of the center of the solar system. And that, you know, this is um, also a way that exoplanets have been discovered. That, you know, this is common. You know, other stars, they're wobbling, they're moving around. So that on the basis of that, they postulate where a planet is located relative to the sun. So the planets do modulate the sun. And in turn, the sun is you know the sun's activity is modulated uh there's a point where the, the sun is actually orbiting around the barycenter the center of, the, of mass of the solar system and there's a couple points where it kind of makes a quick jerk it swoops around real fast and that's um you know uh correlated with solar storms and eruptions and so on but there are there are constant signals coming from the sun the solar wind and all sorts of high particles coming from flares and, you know, coronal mass ejections and, and whatnot. So we're bathed in it. And so a lot of it's rhythmic. And that rhythm is driven by the planet. So that's one explanation for at least some kinds of processes on the Earth that we could call astrology. Right. So that, and then that really raises a question then at a certain point of what is your definition of astrology? And, and depending on what definition you adopt, 
you know, some of that may constitute astrology or may constitute a form of astrology. Um, if, for example, you adopt like a common definition, like I just did a Google search for astrology, and the definition it gives is the study of the movements and relative positions of celestial bodies interpreted as having an influence on human affairs and the natural world. So that's pretty common for most definitions. That's a pretty good. That's know, a good definition, yeah. Well, in, I, and I actually, well, one of the issues with that definition I've talked about is that actually a lot of astrologers that have followed like the synchronicity model uh, would object to that definition because it centers on the notion that there's a celestial influence on earthly events. And if somebody's arguing that it's a causal, then that definition actually doesn't fit. However, if you did adopt that definition, and I think that is the definition that you're adopting in general, then you could say it starts getting really ambiguous at what point something is just um, astrology versus whatever else you want to classify that as. Um, and I think that's kind of an interesting ambiguity in the first couple of chapters of your book. Yeah, I, it's well. In, in the sense of like, there's what used to be classified as natural astrology, which is just the, the sometimes the influence of celestial bodies on Earth and life on Earth or different things like that um, through natural or let's say scientific means. Some of that at this point is viewed as legitimate science versus um, there's this other area that's, that's not viewed as legitimate science at this point. And, yeah, and there's a little ambiguity between the two of what constitutes astrology. Yeah, when you get to people, it gets a little weird. But in my argument is, is this, is, and this is my definition of astrology. Let me state this first. Astrology is uh, the subject that um, maps and analyzes and computes trajectories in regard to the behavior of self-organizing systems of all types. Now, self-organizing systems, these, this is a category, this is a class of um, phenomena in nature. And I'm arguing that astrology deals with them and only them and nothing else. So, so astrology is specifically applied to self-organizing systems. Now, uh, a self-organizing... What, what is a self-organizing system? Yeah, I was just about to get there. Okay. Yeah. Okay, let's start with a, with a cell. You know, a cell is a, um, an organic life form that is self-regulating, that is self-making, it has a boundary, but the boundary is permeable because <clears throat> it has to take in things like water or light uh, and food. Um, it slows down entropy, for sure. Life is, is a lot of people would argue that life is a phenomenon that, that just slows down the, the breakdown of these, the universe, you know, entropy. Um, but, that, uh, that something that, in other words, like something that resists. Dying or has a self-preservation yeah. as a as a motivation. Yeah, and and it has um, it has a a way of harnessing energy. Like for example, in photosynthesis, you have uh, the creation of energy from sunlight. This you know a photon hits a magnesium atom in the middle of a carbon hydrogen ring of some sort, and the electron bounces down through stages and it's captured and stored 
in certain proteins, certain molecules, rather, and, uh, and that they are used for energy to, to run the business, you know, the, the, the organism. And those are called, you know, organisms that do that, like algae, plants, and cyanobacteria are called autotrophs. They make their own food. They make, a, they make it from solar energy. They're, they're chemotrophs. They can make it from chemical energy. And then the rest of the life is heterotrophs like us. We just eat the plants or we eat the, we eat the animals that eat the plants. So the ener energy gets transferred. But getting back to self-organizing system, you start with the cell and then you can move up to, say, an organ or, or a more, uh, you know, a, a simple animal or a simple plant of some sort. And you, you, you know, you move your way up and the next thing you know, you've got um, uh, a human being, you know, a, a domesticated primate. And we are self-organizing. We have all this coordination going on. If we don't eat, we, we die. If we don't drink, we die. You know, we, we need a certain amount of sunlight to produce vitamin D. We move around. We reproduce. Um, we're, we're operating on, a, on an edge, on a, um, a boundary or a, a gradient. We're at the edge of a gradient. And, uh, you know, one thing can kill you. You get old and, you know, who knows? And make it happen in an instant. You know, you're a little tougher when you're younger. You have a little more resiliency. You know, the organism has got a lot, a lot uh, the ability to bounce back faster. But uh, it's, you know, it's a self-organizing system. But then you have this other thing um, going on in the natural world. You have things like hurricanes or tornadoes on short scale, which are kind of self-organizing for a while. Uh, hurricane will you know retain its you know its uh existence as long as it can be fed enough hot air you know and and uh, uh, a tornado as well and, you know you need you need a, a gradient you know between hot and cold air you know to to get these things running on the uh, longer scale is weather which is driven by solar incoming solar radiation and also by the rotation of the earth and wind patterns and so on and then you step back even further and you see climatology, you know, which is weather over millions of years. And then, or you can look at the earth itself. The earth has maintained pretty stable temperatures for the last three billion years. Why? Largely because of the way life has interacted with, you know, the atmosphere and the oceans and the earth and has been able to produce organisms that draw down carbon and, um, you know, uh, keep it cold as the sun got hotter and maintain a pH of the oceans that's favorable for life. This is called, this is the Gaia hypothesis, but the idea is that the earth itself is a self, well, the surface of the earth, basically, where the biosphere is, is a self-organizing system. And we know that, that that's very sensitive to the sun, the moon, and, and the planets in terms of climate and climate cycles and so on. But now we get back to, you know, life. Um, that was a really important point, though, in terms yeah. of your, your broader discussion in the first few chapters, is if you view the Earth as a single sort of organism in, in some sense, then thinking about all the different cosmic things that are happening that are influencing from outside of the Earth that are influencing the Earth in different ways, even on a very long time scale or other times on a, on a short time scale, um, you realize there's, there's like a lot going on in our neighborhood that's 
influencing the earth in different ways as a as a organism yeah oh yeah yeah but i'm just trying to lay a foundation for understanding what a self-organizing system is right I mean, so 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 it and 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 that self-organizing systems are sensitive to their environment including the temporal environment right okay. so this this is this is one of the things about self-organizing systems is they can be incredibly sensitive to very small influences you know like uh lorenz said the butterfly flaps its wings in brazil and you get a tornado in texas you know this is the you know self-organizing systems is part of system science which would include uh, chaos and complexity and cybernetics and a lot of other subjects spread out over different disciplines but now here comes i think one of the toughest but yet most important parts of my argument is that humans in communication form groups and this is another level of self-organizing system let's let's do something simple like take the stock market you've got millions of people hooked up to the stock market and they've all got their own ideas but the stock market behaves in a certain way and anybody that does astrology knows that it does kind of respond to the planets and people make you know that do that entirely in fact but um what is that you know and 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 actually you know you have charts for the stock market like the opening of the new york stock exchange or so on or let's take a nation you know you have uh, a bunch of people living in a country over a long period of time and they develop uh certain characteristics and there's a, a thing that we call a national character and it's it's remarkably stable even though the people don't live you know uh very long the nation goes on you know people drop off new ones come in but the the character is fairly stable there may have been an origin point for it um we could have a chart for that but it's it's a self-organizing system uh, any kind of group can produce that kind of an effect and there are a number of uh writers philosophers um in philosophy it's called emergentism and this has been going on for a while for a few hundred years i guess people have been talking about emergence something that comes out of a lot of people coming together that has its own you know it ha it lives its own life it emerges and i think things like personality emerge from behavior and brain activity and out of personality personalities combined something else emerges which could be you know the stock market or a nation state or you know a, a community group and these things are also sensitive to planetary influences and this is what astrology is studying and it may offer some insights into how horary astrology works right because you know, that's something you go into as you try to you're not you're not just um trying to limit astrology to biological things with like natal astrology or to things like mundane astrology and weather forecasting or other major natural events but also you you do try to make some room at a certain point in your model for uh electional astrology and and horary mm -hmm. astrology yeah yeah I, I talk about that a lot you know and i try to explain them in the, in the the contents text that i was just uh you know uh describing the idea that we have these higher order self-organizing systems that emerge 
out of, uh, in the case of humans, out of human mental activity and communications, and that they are self-organizing in their own way. Um, they're not physical, but they're based on physical. They come out of physical. You know, whether they exist when all the physical, everything physical disappears. I'm not sure about that, but what I'm drawing attention to is a subject area that has been worked on and is taken very seriously by a lot of uh, people in philosophy and sociology and, you know, other uh, fields of inquiry. Um, and I think uh, that their ideas apply very strongly to astrology because what they're trying to describe is the nature of these higher order, um, you know, self-organizing systems. Um, meta-cybernetic is what one author calls them. Um, that they, they hold together. Uh, you know, they're, um, they have some coherence on a non-physical level. You know, th this is this is a, a broad topic, and it's not located in any one subject area. It, it, like system science in general, it's spread all over the map. What would be an example of something that is not a self-organizing system for contrast? A block of wood, or you know, a, a rock, or you know, how fast a rock falls, or uh, you know. The, you know, the flow of electricity through a wire. I mean, you know, these physical things that physics tackle are mm. generally not self-organizing systems. Now, physics has had a hard time tackling self-organizing systems, and they have tried, and that's where you get chaos and complexity, two subject areas that are mostly handled by physicists and mathematicians. Okay. Just trying to get a sense for then, you know, what in your definition, would be under the purview of astrology versus what wouldn't. But I think that starts to give us a better idea of that. Um, so, I mean, so you want to make room, though, for some causal, potentially, um, pieces to astrology at the very least. And it seems like that's the large part of the purpose of part one of the book, right? Yeah, I, want, I wanted part one to kind of set a ground, set a base level. You know, that, that there are things in the physical world that do correlate with astrology and, and also that as, uh, when you look at the components of astrology, they basically, you know, capture what the biologists and chronobiologists and geoscientists have been finding, particularly the biologists, you know, that photo period is important and that phase is important, you know, so that would, that, you know, photo period would be the tropical zodiac and phase would be aspects, and that diurnal motion, which would be houses, is, are important. They're found to be important in experiments. And that what the, the form that astrology took about 2,000 years ago captures a lot of that. And that, I think, is remarkable in itself. I, I haven't seen anybody else talk about it that way. Mm. Um, well, that, that actually provides us with a good transition point into part two of the book, where you focus on the decline of astrology in the during the scientific revolution or at least around that period and mm. what happened and why there was a decline of astrology which put it in the state that it's in today to a certain extent over the past few centuries where it's on this the outskirts of of intellectual credibility um and how that happened and you kind of summarize what the 
usual narrative is surrounding that, but then you try to explain that the story surrounding it is actually more complicated than that. The reasons for astrology's yeah. decline in the uh, especially the 16th and 17th and 18th centuries. Yeah, uh, the, the standard model uh, as it's taught or as, or as it's assumed is that Copernicus showed that the Earth was uh, orbiting the sun and that killed astrology. Um, right, that there, were, you know, there, there was a series of discoveries during the scientific yeah. revolution, especially with respect to cosmology, which ended up displacing astrology or making it uh, intellectually untenable. Or often there's also a, a separate presumption, which you also address, which is that astrology was tested scientifically during the Renaissance and found to be false or lacking. But in fact, that's, that wasn't really true necessarily either. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, you know, first of all, there, there was um, a number of astronomical discoveries, plus Copernicus. You know, he has a theory that the sun was, you know, more or less the center of the solar system. But there were some discoveries, and uh, one of them was, a couple of them were novas that were determined to kind of contradict Aristotle's idea of, you know, kind of barriers between the, the different spheres of the planets. And yeah. then you had Galileo with his telescope seeing things like spots on the sun and the phases of Venus. So you had a lot of these that discredited the old models of Ptolemy and Aristotle, which when pressed, astrologers would say that this is, you know, that this is backing up their work. But I argue that astrologers in general have not been that concerned with theory and that astrologers are actually pretty quick to get on the Copernican bandwagon. They were promoting it out before a lot of other people were. So you, you really can't say that, you know, these changes in astronomical theory were really um, killing astrology. Um, they made a difference, but they weren't killing it. You know, wh what killed it was probably more attacks from, uh, you know, the church, issues over fate and free will. And, um, and the fact that the new science as it developed was pretty good and, uh, you know, it was kind of a brain drain. And astrologers, astrologers were left with just doing practice. You know, in the past, it was in a, the, the same guy was usually an astronomer, an astrologer, and a mathematician. And that, that went right through the Middle Ages pretty much. But by the Renaissance, things were changing around a lot. A lot of roles got messed up. Let's, let's get into all, all this because um, in the last episode, I did an episode talking with uh, the rough title right now, I think it'll be released under, is, is Explaining Astrology to a Skeptic. And I, and I was talking about it for an interview with a science journalist. And um, that I, I did talk about how in the second century, Ptolemy, who was like a polymath and uh, wrote these major academic texts on a number of different fields of natural science that became authoritative, that he kind of set the paradigm not just for astronomy in the second century that lasted for over a thousand years, but he also, as a result of being so authoritative as an astronomer, also wrote a very influential, perhaps the most influential text ever on astrology, which also then um, he tried to provide a conceptual rationale for astrology that fit within his cosmology, and that many subsequent people followed that for a number of centuries, so that when you did get this 
sudden string of discoveries that disproved part of the Aristotelian cosmology that Ptolemy based his models on, um, that it did suddenly throw that paradigm of how astrology worked into disarray to some extent amongst intellectuals. Yeah, it did. Basically, Ptolemy's model was Aristotelian with a few modifications. Which, which were, and by that we mean it required things like the Earth being at the center of the solar yeah. system. Yeah. It required perfect circular spheres that mm -hmm. each of the planets was on, perfect circles. It required like a crystalline structure in order for the planets to, to transmit motion or change through the yeah. planetary spheres to Earth and other things like that. Yeah. Yeah. It was the idea that you had this stacking of, you know, the glares of an onion around the Earth and each one, each layer had its planet and there was some unknowable prime mover in the back that would knock on the outside window and it would the sound would would be transmitted down 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 to the center which was where the earth was and the sub you know under the the orb of the moon so it was called sublunar and that explained astrological influences that were coming down ptolemy had a couple subtle variations on that um i think schmidt translated one uh theory of the planets one of the early uh Project Hindsight translations, you're probably familiar with it. Right. But, but so the point is that, but Ptolemy wasn't the originator of astrology and he was coming in like th two or three centuries after the development of Hellenistic astrology and the form yeah. of astrology that's dominated the West over the past 2000 years. What he did, the primary thing that he did is he just um, adapted it and tried to explain it in a way that made sense within the context of the prevailing scientific paradigm of his day. Just like if, for example, there was like a, a polymath or a genius or like a, a Stephen Hawking type figure today who took astrology but then explained it and placed it within the context of modern scientific thinking and theories and made it um, seem plausible within the context of what we currently know about the universe. And then if a thousand years from now, um, the scientific understanding of the universe changes and all of a sudden the old paradigm is thrown out. But then all of a sudden, if the, to the extent that the astrology was attached to that paradigm, that it would accidentally then be tossed out at the same time if it was too closely connected with that paradigm? Yeah, I, well, I think astrology was connected with that paradigm, with the Aristotelian paradigm, with some modifications that Ptolemy used uh, you know, to um, describe astrology. And then, of course, Ptolemy had worked out the mechanics of it. He had worked out way to calculate all where the planets would be so that gave it some authority but when you know there were errors were creeping up by people who were doing much more exacting observations like tico brahe uh you know then that that was just you know another nail in the coffin of the ptolemaic model of astrology but what i'm saying is that that wasn't all that important to astrologers the ones that were practicing him, it was important to other people, people outside of astrology. Yeah, well, well, that's the point where I, I wanted to push back a little bit because that's a really good point that you're making, and that article, that argument makes sense that it didn't mat matter to astrologers, and astrologers, as you pointed out, were at the forefront even of adopting some of the, those new astronomical changes. But the way in which it was important is that it did probably make it seem to intellectuals that astrology was no longer tenable because they always continue to assume that that Aristotelian model is what astrology was based on, even though astrology and the practice predated that Aristotelian model 
mm-hmm. of Ptolemy from the second century that it had a long practice of study, empirical observation, and the collection of correlations between celestial movements and earthly events outside of that Aristotelian context for, for many centuries. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you know, for the intellectuals, it meant something. The intellectuals are probably like 0.01% of the population, but, you know, but that meant something to them because they, they were in strong positions. But the, the astrologers themselves, you know, it really kind of comes to a focus with Kepler. And when you read Tertium Intervenians, which was not available until Ken Nagus translated it in Engl- into English. It was not available in English. And I guess it was in the 90s that he translated it. And I've always been friends with him, the late Ken Nagus, president of the Astrological Society of Princeton, founder of it. Uh, Barry Orr is the president of it now. But um, you, you can just see Kepler at that edge between astrology and science. And you know, what he's saying is that, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, that's actually in the subtitle of the book. Mm-hmm. And the book is an argument, series, uh, you know, like a three-way argument between a, a doctor and an astrologer and Kepler, and they're going back and forth on things. And um, Kepler complains all the time about what a horrible job it is to work for these stupid people that, you know, just just want to use astrological information to, you know, manipulate the world and they don't really understand anything serious. And then, you know, they come and then the scientists complain about, you know, well, how does astrology work? And he's got this couple ideas. One of them is resonance. Um, so you, you see he's kind of caught between a rock and a hard place. He, he likes astrology, but the, he doesn't see that he can't continue it as a practice. And it's you can come up with some theories about how it works, but you can't really nail down what it does. Meanwhile, somebody like Galileo is dropping, you know, cannonballs from the top of the Leaning Tower of Pisa and measuring the amount of time it takes to get down there and the distance, and he comes up with a formula, and it's 100% predictable. You know, that, you know, there's no question about uh, the accuracy of what, they're, you know, what he's doing. And uh, Kepler himself comes up with the uh, mathematical modeling of the solar system, you know, a real good prediction of where the planets are, are going to be based on elliptical orbits and, and knowledge like that. So I think what we see here is this kind of split between astrology as a practice and astrology that's linked to some kind of theory, but that didn't kill astrology. Right, but... One of your points in the book that was really good, and one of the points you just made is that the the mechanism for astrology that was assumed to be the case up to that point was lost during the Renaissance and the scientific revolution. Yeah. And nobody, partially due to a a brain drain at that point, because then astrology started uh, being kicked out of universities, and most intellectuals who up to that point, sometimes you would get these, you know, major intellectuals who were. Um, not just astronomers or, or mathematicians, but also would do work sometimes in astrology, like a Kepler or a Ptolemy or what have you, that you, you stopped having figures like that so that we never had another person who stepped up and was able to propose or um, introduce a new explanatory mechanism that explained and justified astrology. So therefore, that's the other part of the reason why it, it fell into decline in intellectual circles. Yeah, I think that's true. I, you know, it's too hard of a problem to solve. 
And and John Goad tried to do it by this massive meteorological study, and it was he was a little too early. If he had done it like two centuries later, he would have had good instruments, and he would have had statistics, and he would have been able to do something with it. But in the 17th century, he didn't have that, and so he just had correlations and uh, um, you know kind of subject uh, subjective data that he worked with. It's it's really an interesting piece of work though i've summarized it in a couple articles and it's in the book but you know astrology at that point was unable to come up with a a a theory or um, a model or a you know some kind of mechanism that made sense and you know there are two other factors that you got to consider in the decline too one is the bad behavior of astrologers so you know once they got a hold of printing presses or, you know, you worked with printers and started putting out almanacs, it became competition. You know, it became just like the internet is now everybody's trying to blow their own horn as much as they can and get everyone, you know, to go along with the program. And so you had a story of like like Twitter and like the proliferation of social media and the ability for any astrologer or anybody calling themselves an astrologer to have a platform and to issue sometimes wild predictions about different things. There's, yeah. That's kind of the, the analogy today of what you're talking about in terms of the explosion of, of things after the printing press, after the 15th and 16th centuries. Yeah, I think the, that bet- you know, from the printing press to, you know, for the next hundred years, was, was, could be compared to like the first 20 or 20, 30 years of the internet. It took a little bit longer, but you know, they, people were just getting used to this new way of transmitting information. And uh, the uh, the astrologers are printing almanacs with prognostications about things like floods, and they got a little carried away with that. Disasters, and you know, everyone, every astrologer wanted to be more dramatic than the next one because that would sell more almanacs. You know, it's kind of like tabloids. So I think that's a factor to be, to consider too, because that cheapened the reputation of astrology, and eventually, you know, a, a writer on the level of Jonathan Swift just made fun of it. Well, yeah, and also, you know, astrologers always have had and will always have pressure on the part of their the public based on their expectations about astrologers' ability to predict the future. Um, there is always that societal pressure on astrologers to attempt to make predictions about major events that are coming up in the future. So it was was not merely sensationalism necessarily, but also um, I'm I'm sure that played a role in terms of some of those predictions that were made. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think that that those problems could be avoided with good institutions, but we don't have those. Astrology Mm -hmm. has never had good institutions. There was always, I think that the the competition, you know, astrologers for the longest time had patrons and then suddenly they had the ability to market their own product and it's been competitive a little bit like that all, all along and, and that has produced some problems and then the other uh, issue was the uh, issue of, of uh, astrology being ter- interpreted as deterministic and uh, the, the church's role in that you can't have any kind of deterministic universe if you're going to have uh, you know sin and so on in religion and there right. was I, I think a, a steady you know concentrated you know pressure on astrology you know for that reason you know that was a really interesting point to me because that in researching my book and my period on hellenistic astrology and and the rise and popularization of astrology in the early roman empire and then the decline of astrology in the later roman empire that coincides with the rise of christianity <laughs> and and how um 
that conflict between astrology and Christianity primarily had to do with um, a theological or philosophical problem of fate and free will because astrology became so much associated with fate um, that that ran into conflict with Christianity that put free will and choice as a major tenant of its theology. Um, but a major point that you make actually at one point in passing in these chapters in the middle of the book, this very large section that I thought was really interesting and compelling was not just that being an issue with astrology always having this tension with the church, because that had been going on for over like a thousand years by the time of the 16th and 17th centuries, but it was the rise of humanism and how that also, ironically, from a different direction, also mm -hmm. emphasized free will and how that ran into potential conflict with astrology was kind of an interesting point because that was something that was a little bit new at that time. Yeah, that, that fed into it. You know, via the rise of humanism, it really explains a lot about the Renaissance, the emphasis on the human being. I mean, this is, I, I look at it as the rise of, you know, in, you know intense anthropomorphism. You know, an, I'm sorry, anthro, an, anthropocentrism. You know, that, that the human is, you know, man is the measure of all things. You know, you got the Leonardo da Vinci drawing and all that. Just this right. incredible focus on people, you know, on how people have their own choice and their free will and people can almost be like gods and so on. And then you get the, you know, Pico della Mirandola attacking astrology. He was like a, one of the great humanists of the period and wrote this massive attack on astrology. And that was taken very seriously. I think that played a big role in the decline of astrology. A lot of people read it and took it seriously, and you know, I, I you know, account for. Look, I'm frozen again on the screen for some strange reason. Oh, I got got freed up. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the the humanism so, and the the idea that like man is like the pinnacle of of nature in some yeah. sense, crown of creation. Um, right. So Je Jefferson Airplane. So you do start get, getting uh, some major pushback from astrology in this period from people like Pico that wrote one of the most comprehensive uh, criticisms and attacks on astrology ever. And that I was actually uh, a really I, a few pages that I really liked in your book was this table that showed the classic anti-astrology arguments mm. summarized and then how astrologers have, have responded to those arguments or how they've dismissed them um, in pretty straightforward ways. But that was like one of the my favorite parts of the book was just that three-page table, I think. Yeah, good. Um, let me see if I can... I can't pull that up on the screen right now. I might put it up later, but let me see if I can find it really quickly, because some of your responses were great, and that, that actually would make... I've been meaning to do an episode on that topic for a while about some of the classical objections to astrology, and, and that would make a whole separate podcast episode. But So you just contrast um, Carnides' arguments where he says, you summarize saying, precise observations of the heavens are impossible. And then the response of the astrologers, you say, is observations must be done carefully. Better technology improves observations. Or um, you say, Carnades says, people born at the same time have different destinies. And the astrologers say, people born at the same time, born under different life circumstances, but they will experience similar events at the same time. So you just keep going back and forth, and it's really yeah. nice summary because that eventually gets into the Renaissance and some of the arguments that came up against astrology at that point. Yeah, I, I thought that was a good way to do it because they did come up over and over again in different forms. And uh, yeah, just a little summary there. But Pico mm -hmm. did, used all those, and he had some of his own. He went on and on. It was uh, 
It's, I don't think that it's entirely translated into English, but I was able to read some uh, pieces that were translated, commentaries on it by other people. It's a big, big book. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. Um, but I, I think there's, there was somebody that was translating at one point, and I don't know what happened with that, but I think we'll eventually see it in translation one of these days. Um, okay, so trying to think of other factors. I mean, that led to the decline of astrology. You also mentioned like political stuff and social stuff that astrologers yeah. are getting wrapped up in politics in Europe um, because they were serving as court astrologers sometimes or because they were printing almanacs that contained predictions about political events and sometimes yeah, like they were lily yeah like lily and lily's yeah. like taking sides in like an actual war that's going yeah. on and sometimes when different political um tides shift in different ways that can shift against the astrologers when the party that the astrologers were supporting sort of falls out of power or what have you yeah that's what happened now uh, you know with the english revolution lily was uh you know he was an anti-royalist and, uh, you know, predicted all these, you know, the, the uh, uh, battles that um, Cromwell was involved in. He was, apparently was fairly successful with those. But, you know, after that happened, the country was a mess and a lot of people uh, resented it. And since Lily had taken a position, uh, that affected his reputation to some extent. I'm not sure exactly how far that was. He seems to have been a pretty clever character. And was able to relate to a lot of different people. Uh, at least he wasn't taken out and drawn and quartered or burned alive or anything. So, mm. yes. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you're uh, right. I, mean, I think that the the social position of astrologers is important, and I think that you know, with the rise of um, you know reductionist, mechanistic, and materialist science. And, and astrologers not having anything to do with that because they couldn't really test their subject material given the, the knowledge and the, the, the means and the understanding of the time, uh, the, um, the technical understanding. I think that the, um, you know, astrologers just found themselves more and more isolated from the higher levels of society and basically, uh, you know, survived in the middle classes and the lower class in the lower classes as almanacs and um i guess conjurers but in the middle class as people probably like sibley you know who who wrote in the 18th century basically copying what came before him nothing really new but operating in that safe middle class zone probably around london having some clients yeah well there, there continued to be some practitioners of astrology that yeah. you know cast natal charts and or did horary charts or electional or what have you but yeah. that it wasn't operating in some of the same like higher level intellectual spheres as as previously with you know figures like kepler or ptolemy or what have you oh yeah. yeah um so that seems really important to me though something i was learning about recently that even um the development of statistics and averages of things like that an average is not really happening until somewhat late around the time of this period, but that the important point that it wasn't that astrology was tested statistically during that time using the type of scientific testing that we would think of as common nowadays, and that's how astrology was disproven in the 16th or 17th century, but instead there was primarily this like paradigm shift that made astrology seem not plausible anymore 
Yeah. That combined with a bunch of other social, political, and other factors. And religious. And religious factors. Well, yeah. and, and or non-religious in some yeah. instances, if we're talking yeah. about human, humanism. Right. Um, so that was the point at which both, yeah, that, that astrology declined. And that's really what you spend like several chapters talking about is how complex that was just in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. It was a lot of things going on. It was a perfect storm. And uh, knocked astrology right out of its uh, higher position, but it was al- it was it was always under attack from religion. You know there was always that problem, and and I think that astrology had previously been in a fairly precarious position because in order to uh, maintain uh, the practice, you had to have a patron of some sort. So in the patronage system, you're pretty much at the mercy of who you're working for. Uh, some of it was going on. Um, in the institutions of the time, which were the church institutions, but of course they didn't want to have a lot of people astrology there. So you did have some work on astrometeorology and uh, n- natural astrology, maybe a little bit of medical. Um, but the, the institutions make a big difference. They can keep something going. Sure. Yeah. Um, so there's this decline of astrology, but it in intellectual circles, it falls out of the universities yeah. uh, where there used to be chairs for astrology and it was integrated into other fields like medicine. But then I think by the end of the 17th and, and 18th centuries, all of that's disappeared from universities. But the astrology, the, the practice of astrology persists among individual practitioners who are just focusing on casting charts and interpreting them from, for clients and passing on part of that tradition in terms of the practice without necessarily trying to do like high level theorizing about right. how it works and how it integrates into modern cosmology and science and other things like that yeah it was middle class i mean people that would probably had other jobs uh they were hobbyists uh, antiquarians you know interested in this sort of thing and mostly in england i don't know a lot about uh how much astrology survived elsewhere but everything i'd read sh- said that not very much uh, it was uh, in France. It was kind of banned from the scientific circles, and there were probably astrologers in France and Italy and Germany, but not a lot. England seems to be the place where it really, you know, kept going. You know, kept being passed along. But like you say, it was, you know, not theoretical. It was it was practice? I mean, that's what we inherited. And in, you know, here in the you know twentieth and twenty first century, we inherited uh, astrology strictly as a middle-class practice yeah as a practice and also as part of a collective empirical tradition that's actually something you emphasize a lot that i thought was a really interesting point in the book that astrology has going back to mesopotamian times uh, a long empirical tradition that started with the collection of of observing observations between celestial movements and earthly events Mm-hmm. And then writing those down on clay tablets and passing that down from generation to generation as as observations about these correlations that they were seeing. And that's when we say like the practice it is part of what we mean by the practice or what you mean by the practice is that sort of uh, collective or cumulative uh, empirical tradition to a certain extent of, yeah. of astrology. Yeah, that, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And you know, it's been pretty consistent. I mean, this is, you know, a, a great argument. I bring this up to people. I say, you know, Saturn's been pretty much the same thing for the last 3,000 years, you know, if not longer. I mean, it's cold and hard. 
you know it's uh, associated with the, the temperaments and and so on but um astrology has just uh become more sophisticated in terms of its understanding of the primary symbols and that's an empirical project that's that's a result of centuries of observations uh, and of course everything takes place in the context of the culture that you're in but they they have accumulated and, and we're the beneficiaries of it right and i think one of the points you make at one point is that you can collect um not just in astrology but in other scientific fields like collect a series of observations about a correlation and the the outcome of something that you're seeing of something that's happening in nature without necessarily knowing the mechanism of why that's happening or how that's happening yeah. that, that eventually you want to get to that point ideally but it's not necessary in all instances for the practice to persist um, by just observing the the sort of outcome of that process or just collecting the correlations themselves yeah i i think that you know um that science can't be eliminated uh, limited to reductionism that you know the naturalist does exactly what you described it, you know he's looking at what's going on and trying to you know make sense of it if a, if it gives rise to a theory all the better but it doesn't have to you know you're still observing the behavior you know suppose you're studying uh, you know squirrels in your backyard like i do you know you watch them carefully and you learn to you know distinguish between the individuals and you know follow their behavior and so on that's doing science that's a, that's you know that's that's a, a kind of science i mean really biology was doing that for a long time right and the biologists were so excited when they finally got a, a good theory of evolution and they got even more excited when they got some kind of molecular model Right. Well, I mean, and didn't evolution eventually develop, you know, Darwin developed the theory of evolution eventually after a long series of like observations yeah, and, yeah. and of field studies of going yeah. out into, into the field and studying things. Yeah. I mean, one of the big, you know, characters in uh, biology is Carl Linnaeus, you know, started classifying um, organisms, you know, genus and species. So classification precedes all this other science. So it's a science. You know, I, I, I'm very clear in this book that I think what, when people say follow the science, you know, you got, I say to myself, what are the hell are they talking about? They should be saying, I, you know, follow the reductionist, materialistic, mechanistic, you know, deterministic science. That's what they're saying. They don't even know what they're saying. You know, they, they just call it the science, but science is bigger than that. There's just a lot of people that are, you know, they want to make everything physics. Now, science is a collaborative, democratic method, a, a collection of methods to make knowledge about the natural world. That's, I think, a good definition. You know, you just can't make something up and say it's true. I mean, you could do that in religion, but you can't do that in science. If you say, you know, the, uh, the sky is blue, you have to get some confirmation from other people. That makes it democratic, you know. It's science is a sophisticated uh, body of knowledge uh, that, that is greater than simple know-how, which is more like trial and error. And you have know-how, you know, you can fix a car, but you don't know how the car works. Science, science, you know, takes that further and analyzes every step and and uh, tries to understand how the car works. Yeah, well, that, and that you meant drive a car, I think, fix a car. That's 
I, I, at the, as I was speaking, I was imagining myself under one of my old Chevys or Volkswagens taking it apart. Okay. Well, I was thinking of an analogy that I use sometimes that astrologers are like practitioners or people that know how to operate uh, a technology or an advanced technology. Like I know how to use a microwave, for example, to like heat up a, a, a burrito without necessarily knowing fully the mechanics of like how a microwave works yeah. or being able to construct one. If I had to build one from scratch, it's possible to to know how to use or operate a technology uh, without necessarily uh, knowing fully what the theoretical like principles are underlying it. Sure, we could apply that to the study of electricity. You know, it's a lot. You know, people don't. You know exactly what electricity is. Uh, you know, movement of electrons and so on. Um, you know, it's an ongoing process, but but they figured out what to do with it pretty pretty quickly. You know, you got electric light bulbs and motors and things like that, but they didn't really know what they were dealing with. They were dealing with a force of some sort, or or even uh, like gravity, for example. Like people used gravity to their advantage in different ways prior to Newton coming along and explaining a theory or, or coming up with a theory for what gravity is. Yeah, you make a water wheel, you know, it runs on gravity, mm. you know, or a clock, you know, pendulum of some sort. Yeah, you know, yeah, of course. So I, I, I have a very broad definition of science, and uh, I, I don't think science should be limited to, uh, you know, taking part of nature into your laboratory and dissecting it into pieces. And then coming up with a mathematical equation to explain it and, and, and say this is the only definition of reality. I mean, to, you know, even to get to that place, you have to do a lot of other things. As long as it's done in a way that's uh, democratic, you know, you, have, uh, you, you, know, you try to get a, a good consensus and it's done logically and, method, and you follow a method, you know, that's science. And I think astrology, uh, you know, is like a lot of these other subjects, like electricity that I mentioned, where they're, we're dealing with a, um, we're, we're dealing with something that's not easily explained in, in the context of, of current knowledge. We, you know, there are ideas about it, which I talk about all through the book, but you still know how to work with it. You still know what to do with it, and there's a lot of evolution of techniques. So I think that's one of the good things that's going on in astrology now is you have experimenting a lot of experimentation with techniques from the ancient world and modern world and uh, uh, other parts of the world, you know, India and so on. And, and people are testing these things out. Presumably, the testing will get more rigorous over time. I think right now we're, the, the field of astrology is in kind of a, um, both an exploratory phase and it's also in a, in a phase where it's trying to gather itself together to be a little bit more coherent and create some institutions. All right, we're back from a break. So in so we've kind of covered what you cover in the middle of the book, which is the decline of astrology and now we've started getting into part 3 of the book where you focus on <clears throat> the history of the revival of astrology in modern times, some of the uh conflicts that have happened especially with the skeptical and the scientific communities mm. as astrology has tried to reestablish itself as a respectable intellectual discipline, and then eventually you get into some um, reflections, some personal life reflections about your, your experience as an astrologer over the course of your life, as well as some statements about the future and how you think astrology is going to go over the course of the next century. Yep. So I was surprised by 
you know, like I said, as somebody that didn't come into the astrological field until I started studying astrology in 1999, and um, I started Ke- I was studying at Kepler in the mid 2000s. Actually, partially with you, you're one of my teachers at Kepler College. Um, I wasn't. I, I studied, but I wasn't around for some of the things that happened with the attempts to study astrology scientifically in the 1960s and 70s mm. and 80s. And it was interesting hearing in some instances about your firsthand experience with some of these tests where you were actually like one of the astrologers that participated in some of the studies that were done during that time period. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sean Carlson, that study. That was a terrible study. And yet it's because it was published in Nature, it's taken very seriously. You know, these guys, they test one thing. In this case, they tested astrologers' ability to connect charts with personality profiles that were created by the California Personality Inventory. And I, and I, I point at them, that's like comparing apples to oranges. It's not really fair. And people tell me that he did the statistics wrong. I never checked him out. I don't know, even know if I know enough to be able to find those differences. But other people that seem to know have said that, yeah, that, that was flawed as well. But in any case, it got out there as kind of a you know, kind of a nail in the coffin thing. It really showed that astrologers don't know what they're talking about. Right. One of the ones that was more interesting was the, the earlier study, the Vernon Clark studies, which was mm, astro- yeah. astrologers matching charts to clients, um, which was initially positive for astrology. But one of the observations that you made, I think, in terms of the issues with astrologers replicating studies like that is the lack of standardization in the field and the um the skill of practitioners kind of being all over the place because of the lack of standardization and the distinctions between like who's in a, a skilled astrologer versus who's not being somewhat ambiguous ambiguous sometimes to say the least you know hey anybody can be an astrology to, astrologer today it's like a it's a free for all you know um and i point out in several places uh, that you know, if you're a good hustler, you can get somewhere. Um, I have Mars and Libra conjunct Neptune, so I've never really had the hustling instinct. You know, I had other things going on in my mind, but I, I, I just stuck with it. I have persistence, and so I did manage to make a living at it for a long time. But, um, you know, it's, um, it's a chaotic situation when you have people in a field and they're not, there's no way to know who knows what. If you're an outsider, you, you know, come to astrology, well, who should I have? So they usually go by word of mouth, and that, that can work pretty well. But today, with, you know, the, the uh, ease of advertising, you know, back in, you know, before pre-internet, advertising was hard to do. You know, you had to, you had to print up newsletters. I used to have a newsletter I would send out by mail and, you know, that sort of thing. You had to do that, but it, but today it's very easy, and so it's even more a case of uh, you know somebody having good you know PR skills and a little bit of knowledge of astrology could get uh, develop a bigger clientele than than somebody who's very competent but uh, is not comfortable uh, blowing their own horn. So that's I think a, a big big problem in astrology today is that there's no way for the outside world to make sense of what the heck is going on. Right. And I think you said in one of the studies, they just kind of like collected astrologers from one local astrology group or something oh, like God. that. Yeah. 
And then that was supposed to be sufficient in terms of testing astrology, even though just collecting astrologers from a, a random astrology group is not necessarily going to net like the highest or, or most skilled or even proficient practitioners from the field. Oh yeah, you know the, I, that one in particular. I, for, I think it was in Ohio or something, Indiana or something like that. But you know, this guy from a college goes out and he finds some nice people that have an astrology club, which I had never heard of. Gives them a psychological test, you know, probably similar to the the one that was in Nature, the Sean Carlson one, and then you know takes the results and shows that nothing ha- nothing happened. It's uh, evidence that astrology doesn't work. And then that gets published in a psychological journal, and people, you know, uh, refer to it, and it gets around, and it's ridiculous. Uh, a lot of that has happened. There are some very bad, horrible studies of astrology that have gotten published in decent journals because there's no, you know, they call them peer-reviewed, but nobody's really qualified to do, you know, uh, to peer-review an astrology article in those magazines. Probably not. Right, because most scientists that would be on a peer-reviewed board of a scientific magazine wouldn't, not only wouldn't have any background in astrology or sufficient background, but they'd also have like an ideological um, sort of bias against it, which is one of the other issues that's a common recurring and, and major thing. And something I was reflecting on recently because I feel like in my experience that the, the skeptical community was much more uh, vibrant and much more, maybe vibrant isn't the right term, but uh, bigger like in the mid-2000s when I was first in the field for like the first decade. And I feel like that's declined over the course of the past decade. But in the period of time we're talking about was probably the time when the skeptical community was was perhaps the most like organized and motivated and um uh, i don't know if militant is the right term but there was just a lot more I think going it on might this, be, yeah. <laughs> yeah in the 1970s and 80s and just in terms of what that was like operating as an astrologer during that time but not just that but that um with people like that that there tends to be an ideological motivation or implicit assumption that astrology can't work and therefore uh just cosmologically or philosophically or, or there's a there's a preconception that it's not possible that this works so therefore any attempts to try to validate it need to be um stopped and need to be dismissed in some way even when sometimes that runs counter to even like uh sort of realistic or acceptable like scientific practices and that was the big issue with the Gokland studies and the different attempts to to replicate the Mars effect. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that if you're you know uh, in science and you've gone through all the education and uh, you basically have settled on a uh, a reductionist you know physicist kind of perspective, astrology mm-hmm. makes no sense in that context, none whatsoever. And if you accept astrology, it means you got to throw overboard everything that you've learned. Or at least a lot of it, and I have had uh, people in physics and some in philosophy that I have friends in those fields, and they, that's what they've told me. They've said that you know if I buy astrology, then I got a real problem, you know, they, because that's going to interfere with everything that I've come to you know conclude is true and real. Because there's no known mechanism about as, how astrology would work. Yeah, and also the implications of it. Um, you know, for a person, for example. I mean, you know, the whole 
the astrology of the person is the real touchy area. Nobody cares about the astrology of uh, the weather or the climate, or at least not as much. But yeah, I mean, I just have a. It's hard a little bit understanding because it's you know oftentimes that presumption, that strong presumption, it's it, it's based on whatever limited understanding the person has about what astrology is to begin with, because it, it usually doesn't extend to even knowing about or being familiar with like birth charts or that astrology is more than just sun sign astrology or something like that. So there's this um, perception or, or sort of prejudice against it intellectually before you even get to the point of like that there's more to it than just what the person is familiar with or what a person from the general public would be familiar with. Yeah, it's, they have a knee-jerk reaction. Um, Lynn Margulis, who I worked for, and she's the one that you know, uh, was my advisor for the, my PhD program. She, you know, the only thing she knew about astrology was that there were a lot of Scorpios in her family, like way more than there should have been. But she never really, you know, she was busy with her own things. She never had time to learn anything about it. But we, she and I were very good friends. And she used to test out astrology on some of her, um, you know, peers in, in science. And she would mention that, you know, she has a graduate student that's studying astrology. And she would say that, you know, one guy almost had a heart attack. You know, they, he, he, you know she described him as just going, you know, off the deep end. Like, he start, almost started shouting at her. And that almost everybody, you know, said, well, that's, that's a lot of, you know, crap. You know, we're, come on, what's the matter with this, you know? But there were a couple, a couple of them that popped up out of the woodwork that had been studying astrology on their own. They just weren't going to open their mouth about it. And I was at a conference, in a, a science conference in, in Italy one time, and uh, one of the um, guys there came to me after, you know, be at a break and said, you know, uh, I heard from Lynn that, you know, you study astrology. You know, I don't, I don't tell anybody that, but I do as well, and I have some of my own ideas. Do you want to hear them? You know, so he had, had a bunch. He was, uh, the guy was a, a paleontologist, you know, but he was, had this whole little thing on the side that he was doing with astrology. And, it was interesting. It was kind of his, his own flavor of it. You know, he got a lot of ideas from mainstream, you know, astrology, but started developing. And I can't recall off, uh, offhand exactly what some of those were, but that was fascinating to me that there was, you know, at least two people that I ran into in the sciences that kept their mouths shut and were exploring astrology on their own. But most of them had knee-jerk reactions, you know, don't even bring it up. Yeah, that's going to be one of the most interesting things from a social standpoint is that because astrology in intellectual circles is viewed as, like Turnus usually says, the, the gold standard of pseudoscience, um, or like the paradigm of what, what a pseudoscience is supposed to be about, that um, there are a number of people, there's a, a surprising amount of people that will not be open about their either interest in or practice of astrology to people around them or people in their social circles or especially their work circles due to a fear of um, major repercussions, negative repercussions, if they were to like divulge that to people openly, yeah. that they that they could suffer um, you know, career setbacks or um, you know, issues with religious family members or uh, just a number of different things like that. Oh yeah, I know. I know quite a few people who are um, 
you know, in business, in, you know, work for corporations or, or teach at universities mm-hmm. uh, that I talk to. They ask me questions about astrology or, or I, 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 in the past, give a presentation somewhere and they come up to me afterwards and they just say, yeah, I do it. I, I bought a copy of Solar Fire and I'm exploring it and, uh, you know, try out all these different things. And, uh, but I don't tell anybody that I work with about it. Right. I mean, I think any, every practicing astrologer knows that and has that experience because as soon as you start being a consulting astrologer for on a long enough timeline, you see people from all walks of life and many different professions and many different stratas of society and everything else who have an interest in astrology. And you realize that they're not always, you know, can't always be open about that in, in public. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, I've had that problem too. I, I've early on. I mean, when I really got seriously involved in astrology, I was in my early twenties, I guess. And um, even people in my family had a little bit of, of a problem with it. You know, that came up for a while. And my uncle, who was uh, Sagittarius with Gemini Moon, could handle any position. You know, defended me. He says, "Hey, leave him alone. He's you know." You know, he's not stupid. He's he's learning about something. What do you guys know about it? And I thought that was great. He was a good uncle. But uh, there was uh, there were other times where I was in group situations where people would start attacking astrology, and I got good enough to be able to stop it, put them down. And that that it, you know that was a bad thing. I mean, I got in trouble a few times for that. Uh, you know, like I was being some kind of meanie, putting somebody else down that was trying to put me down. Because in the larger scheme of things, astrology couldn't possibly be real. It was just some kind of like hobby that Bruce was having, you know, was involved with. So yeah, yeah I, I, well, I had to deal with it a lot, a lot in early on. And then I just, after that, I just didn't care. I didn't care what people thought. And if somebody didn't like astrology, the hell with them. Yeah, I mean, um, so that's, you know, on the one hand, you get the increasing, the, the, scientific sort of orthodoxy being against astrology and that becoming increasingly militant um, through the rise of, of scientific skepticism in the 70s and 80s. And then on the other side of society and culture, you also still have centuries of pushback from uh, religious sectors of society and, and the religious objections to astrology. Um, so it's within this context that like some of the attempts to even try to validate astrology scientifically are happening in the 20th century. And the primary one, or the one that was the, the most promising, was the Gokland studies. And that's something that you, you spend uh, time talking about at a few different points yeah. during the course of the book, and, and that it seems like you still think is, is relevant and needs to be part of the discussion today. Oh, yeah. I think that it was uh, the most sustained a uh, complex and sophisticated, you know, sophisticated astrological study so far, because Using. he spent his whole life, and his wife was working with him, you know, Michelle and Francois Guacland, uh, and uh, it was rigorous. I mean, that study holds up to any great scientific study. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of garbage out there that's done, and that is that allows the FDA to make a drug legal. You know, but Gawkland's is just as tough and tight, uh, and more so than, than most of these. And um, it's been challenged. Uh, you know, you know, if you interviewed Ken Irving, you know all about it. I mean, he's the one who's 
you know, um, the uh, the tenacious Mars effect, right? Is the name of the book, right? Yeah, Earl and, uh, and Irving. I guess I'm bringing it up because um, there was a lot of excitement surrounding Gokulin's work and other um, attempts to do studies, like scientific studies of astrology like that, where you kind of pick out one factor or, or a couple of factors in astrology and you try to test it scientifically. But I feel like the astrological community hit a wall in the 1980s and 1990s with some of those studies where, for different reasons, things were not going as well as, as had been hoped. Um, Sometimes, occasionally, through like underhanded means, like some of the replications of the Gokland studies that were were withheld or, or swept under the rug initially, um, and it seemed like, especially starting in the '90s, there started being a lot of reflections in the community about why this was, attempts to explain it, and a sort of decline in enthusiasm and questions, especially about whether that was even an appropriate way to attempt to validate astrology. So that you get the works of people like, you know, most notably Jeffrey Cornelius and his work, The Moment of Astrology, that tries to explain why scientific tests of that sort, statistical tests primarily, might always be doomed to failure um, or might not be an appropriate way to attempt to study the phenomenon of astrology. But it seems like in your book, that's something where you don't agree with that viewpoint and no, the way things no. have gone over the past three decades and that you try to push, push back on that to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with him in the sense that reductionism in testing astrology, you know, is at least initially it's not going to get good results, you know, so it's going to look bad for astrology because astrology, in astrology, you're testing a self organizing system and, and self organizing systems, you know, or um, emergent systems resist uh, quantification. They're very hard to test. So, you know, we're working with a, a difficult beast here. But um, I think there, there, does, there are some openings, and it depends on refinement. Like, for example, there was the NCGR suicide study. And so they got a lot of charts of suicides, people that committed suicide, and they tried to see what was common with them, and they tried everything. You know, they threw the, uh, you know, the kitchen sink at it, you know, Uranian astrology, everything, and they didn't really come up with anything that was statistically significant. Now, my take on that was that, you know, there's different suicides for different reasons. And then sure enough, when I was working on this book, I came across this paper that somebody wrote on a, a study of suicide ideation, like the, you know, um, in the correlation between suicide and what is generating the suicide showed some statistical significance with, you know, uh, you know one set of reasons rather than another. So, you know, to me, I don't remember the details offhand right now, but, you know, to me, that's like a lot of sciences, uh, you know, you, you have to start refining your uh, sample set. Gawkland got results because he didn't take all uh, athletes. He took athletes that were good. And then he had right. to find some way of, of saying how they were good. So they had to have, you know, you know, scored in major competitions or be listed in books or whatever. And that was, you know, checked by Ertl and, and a number of others, and it, and it works. So that's, that's uh, called extreme sampling. And so you do have to do that. Um, I mean, there are people that are doing it. Um, yeah, so there, the point was that the, the phenomenon showed up in the charts of, of eminent athletes, not just yeah. any old yeah. athlete. 
Um, but then there became a argument around what constitutes eminence and and whether there's some subjective issues in terms of um, you know deciding who's eminent versus who's not. Yeah, yeah, and, but that happens in, a, in doing any kind of social science. I mean, I don't think it's, you know, astrology subject matter is complex, but so is psychology because it's almost the same. And, you know, it's take, it, it's, psychology has all the institutions and, and it's aligned itself with the medical field. So it's got that advantage. And, yeah. uh, and so, you know, they, they, you know, they keep working on these personality, pro, you know, inventories and, you know, mostly they're self-created. They're, they're, the studies there are questionable. Uh, they have as hard a time of testing their subject as astrology does, but they're not astrology. Astrology is scary to people, you know, because it interferes with fate and free will and because the physicists don't like it. Um, you know, there's a lot of prejudice towards it. So astrologers, you know, it's, you know, they have to do 10 times as much work to get any kind of attention. Meanwhile, Gawkland study stands there. It's like, an, you, know, a, you know, a giant edifice in, in the field of astrology. It's a big building. And they don't want to look at it. Still goes on. There's still arguments pro and con, but you know, I think it's pretty solid. Right. I think I wrote down a, a sentence that you wrote at one point later in the book where you said it should be obvious by now that astrology does not lend itself to reductionism because it does not study easily reducible phenomenon. Yeah. So yeah. Self-organizing systems are they're in motion. You know? It's hard to, hard to, you know, you, you got to take out, you know, you got to take one shot at it and, uh, you know, t take one piece of it. Well, like what I did with, with the weather, you know, I, I explained it, you know, it traditionally is Saturn and weather. Now, you got to remember that the people that were, you know, on a little side here, the people that were doing astrometeorology were using the same techniques as the people that were looking at natal charts of people. Right? Yeah, I mean, and that, that gets into some complicated stuff, though, in terms of weather prediction and things like that. Um, you but know. they all—I was going to say—they all agreed that Saturn was cold, dark, damp. You know, not good. And I took one of those, you know, qualities, temperature, and then I got daily temperature data, and I ran it against this. In this case, as I mentioned before, the Sun-Saturn opposition, and lo and behold, I got a result. That was pretty consistent. Mm -hmm. So that's reductionism applied to a system, but it doesn't have that much to do with free will, so it's not earth shattering. Yeah, well, and I was thinking, like the Gokland studies are a better example of that to the extent that you're talking about isolating one factor, which is like Mars and what sector of the chart it's in, essentially, and whether yeah. it's especially rising or culminating at the midheaven. Yeah. Um, but you're so, focusing on just that one factor in, in isolation of everything else, which is yeah. hard because that's not usually how astrologers operate when looking at charts, but instead they're looking at um, the totality of the chart and how the alignments of the planets um, it sort of alter the expression of different planets based on how each of the planets in the chart is aligned relative to each other. Yeah, astrology is synthesis. You know, you're blending things and it's done intuitively like an artist does. That's why the practice of astrology is not a science, it's an art. But astrology is a subject and it has a component like other subjects do that could be called theory and, and research and they could be separate or they could be working together or whatever, but that could produce a science. That's what has happened with psychology.
Yeah, and that medicine. seems one of your primary contentions is that yeah. you think that someday astrology will be validated as a science. Yeah, you know, they may, may not, you know, like, you know, people really didn't understand the mechanisms of evolution. When, when Darwin, you know, publishes, uh, you know, he knew that there was variation, but he didn't know how the variation was produced, his theory of evolution. You know, that came later. You know, ironically, it was coming at the same time Gregor Mendel was like working out inheritance with his studies on peace, but it really wasn't until another 50 years where that got integrated with evolution and then it became neo-Darwinism. So, you right, know, similar I, things could happen with astrology. You know, you can, you know, you can, you can build up some kind of model that works pretty well and then start filling in the details later as you get to it. Yeah, but I just... In terms of response to that last question, like that was kind of a non-committal yes, and I think based on the book, you actually have a much more strong, strongly affirmative answer, like personal view on that, that you do strongly believe that astrology will be validated scientifically at some point, as opposed to I'm saying like astrologers such as Cornelius who say no, that, that that's actually not going to happen because there's something about the intrinsic nature of astrology that makes that not possible. Yeah, I don't agree with him at all. I mean, I, there's a lot. He says a lot of interesting things. You know, I read the book. I, I got a lot out of it. But um, I disagree. I think that you know, calling it divination is easy and it solves the problem for the time being. But I think that there's a lot of reality to astrology. You can see it working. You know, and it's affecting other self-organizing systems like weather. And I mean, I've tested it myself. And you know, Gawkelin tested natal astrology by. Uh, noting, you know, significant correlations in the diurnal cycle of the planets, and which most, which we call the houses in astrology. Of course, he called them Gawkelin sectors, and used twelve. What he used twelve, eighteen, and thirty-six, or something like that. Twenty-four. He used different different sectors of, you know, depending on what the study was. But I think that um, as time goes on and astrology begins to build better institutions or institutions in the first place, I mean, what do we have? A few schools and a few organizations? It's about it, right? Yeah. yeah. So, may, so maybe some billionaire will come along and, you know, f start something up. Who knows? I don't know. You know, I'm in, and if you read carefully, I'm, I'm talking in terms of centuries, really. I'm not saying this is going to happen, you know, in the next 20 years, right? Yeah, I mean, well, you actually have, you spend the entire last chapter, which is an interesting contrast, because you early in the book you said about some of the um, diciness with making predictions, but you spend a lot, large part of the last chapter actually making some predictions about the future traje trajectory of astrology and the astrological community just based on your observations of what, what actually seemed like when I was reading it, like a very... Um, uh, interesting and perceptive set of observations about the astrological community and the type of people in it, and a sort of realistic project projection, although sometimes idyllic or like best case scenario projection about where astrology could end up in the future and its place in society based on um, certain things that astrologers might do now. Yeah, I I don't I'm not you know let me be clear and say I'm not making and you know this that I'm not making an astrological prediction about where astrology is going to be. Right. I'm just I'm just making you know some comments and observations you know maybe uh, supported by some ideas that I've gotten from studying history. And I do see astrology as a legitimate subject that's about three or four hundred years behind the other subjects. 
maybe not quite that, maybe, maybe 300 is about right. And so it, it, it has not gone through its uh, you know, significant revolution like biology did or geology did or physics. You know, the, these subjects have gone through these big revolutions and they've become changed and organized. And I think that conditions have just not been ripe for astrology because astrology is the subject that studies, analyzes, and maps self-organizing systems. And self-organizing systems are relatively recently recognized as a distinct phenomena. Uh, and, and um, you know, systems that have emergent properties, I mean, th these are not easily reducible. So that's why astrology is behind, one of the reasons why astrology is behind the times on, you know, uh, having its own revolution that would allow it to be um, better organized as, it is, as a subject. And I, I also want to make perfectly clear that, clear that I'm not s concerned with astrology being accepted by the rest of the world. Oh, look, I froze again. How about that? You know, I have the transiting Saturn on my Mercury now, so I guess my image, you know, video image just fr freezes from time to time. That's fine. But, It'll go away in a moment. Yeah, it'll go away. You know, you just wait long enough with Saturn, right? There we go. We're back, back moving again. Um, but that, um, you know, over, over time, you know, uh, astrology, if it improves and gets serious about itself and gets organized, will we'll just become recognized. It doesn't have to prove itself to some authority. It just has to get tighter and better. And um, you, you can't have a, a free-for-all, and you can't have a situation in astrology where getting astrologers to cooperate is like herding cats. And the reason why is because in order to make a living at astrology, you have to, you know, you have to have a little business. You have to be, a, you know, a, a, an entrepreneur, a sole proprietor, and you have to do a lot of things. Now you have to know the internet, and you got to be a, a broadcaster, and, and you know, you have to publish. You have to do all these things. I mean, I've had to do them. Um, I feel I was fortunate to live a lot of my life before the internet. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I maybe I would see it different if I was born later, but. I, I see the internet as like a bit of a nightmare. I don't know. Um, I could see I could see you being a big hit on on TikTok right now. Possibly might consider that at some point. It'd be oh. it'd be good. Well, maybe you know I'm spending most of my time just trying to keep my health going. Yeah, you know, you know, lead a a, a ritualistic daily routine of little exercises and you know and uh, so on to just keep the whole system going. I don't have a little, lot extra. I felt sad. I sold my old skis the other day. I hadn't used them in a long time. Sorry mm -hmm. to see that go. But anyway, yeah, I think that, you know, getting back to the subject, I think that if astrology internally improves itself, it will, that will make such a difference. The subject will, will be better recognized by others, but who cares? It'll just, it'll, it'll make it on its own. You know, it'll, 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 um, It'll, it'll show, you know, show itself that it can be a subject and it can contribute to the conversation. Right. Astrology is not really contributing now to the world in any significant way, and, it, and I think it should. It has a lot to say, a lot to offer. Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I definitely, in the last chapter of the book, you really focus, while you spend a good deal of time talking about external pressures and, and issues that have kept astrology relegated to the fringes of society for the most part, um, especially in intellectual circles, 
Um, you also spend a good deal of time talking about like some of the internal issues in the astrological community and areas where we kind of need to clean up our act and get it together as a community in order to take astrology into the next level or into the next era. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, astrology operates as a an outsider bubble in a bubble. You know, it's it's a bubble culture. It has its own rules and regulations, and and you know, when you get in those situations, you know, it's it's really a survival crisis of a of a collective. And you know, you help yourself along, and you know, the, you know, every everybody's an astrologer. <laughs> you, uh, I'm an astrologer. What does that mean? You decided you're an astrologer, right? You know, right. or, or so, you know, I'm a professional astrologer. I make some money. How much money? You make a living at it, or is it part time? Is your spouse, you know, covering you, or what? It's just not clear. You know, uh, it's 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 a, a free for all, and yeah. you, you can go on and on for a while with a free for all, uh, but it doesn't really work in the long run. And so, you know, in the meanwhile, it's a cultural bubble. It's isolated, and it's still recovering from the, you know you know, centuries of attacks from the church and ostracism by, you know, the, you know, the physicists and, you know, the, the, the skeptics and so on. It's, it's, in a, it's in a bad shape. And uh, so it needs some work, need, needs some, some focus, you know, some, um, some agreements on, right. on, on, on how best to proceed to develop astrology as a subject that can contribute to the, the um, global conversation on you know what is nature and what is life what is you know how do things work and uh, yeah so one of your points was that because astrology fell out of uh the universities and because it's a largely unreg unregulated field at this point um while there was a push to in the like 80s and 90s to do some certifications of astrology in order to set some standards that there needs to be more of a push towards that because otherwise there's no way to distinguish between who's like a good practitioner of astrology or or one that is either ethical or skilled or or other thing educate well educated yeah. other things like that versus somebody who just started studying astrology like a week ago and started calling themselves an astrologer right away or something like that yeah yeah i, I think that um there's no perfect solution. You know, let me just be clear about that. There's no perfect solution. But uh, testing, education and testing is probably the best option available. And other subjects have agreed, have done that. You know, so when you, go to, when you go to see a doctor, you want to see a doctor that went to med school. And although, you know, the medical field produces... Quali you know, certified doctors, not all of them are that good. There's a range of difference, but at least it prevents the quacks from, from uh, you know, holding a high position. You know, it's, it's a, a sorting out mechanism. It's, it's a, an establishment of some, some kind of standards. I'm, I'm saying that some set of standards is better than none for, for multiple reasons, one of which is better for the astrological community, because it will allow institutions to grow, which will then allow astrology to progress and develop itself. I, sure. I don't believe astrology is perfect as it is. I think astrology is a work in progress. Right. But, but that, um, 
something like that. While even though if we had better certification and better standards in astrology, that just like any other field or other disciplines, there's going to be a range of different practitioners in terms of their level of skill at their job or what they do, as well as you know their ethics or other thing like things like that. It would at least give some baseline for when people try to do studies like the the Vernon Clark studies, where they're trying to get together a group of you know skilled practitioners of astrology and have them match charts in a controlled setting. Because in a test like that, you want to know and be able to have some sort of distinction between you know who's a practitioner of this subject or a skilled practitioner versus who's not. Yeah, I think if you're doing like a Vernon Clark type study now. You know what you would do is you would select you know your uh, the people you were testing to have uh, say some some level of astrological certification plus you know some number of years of of uh, practice and then you'd, you'd be more likely than not to get people that knew what they were talking about. Yeah, yeah. I mean that would that would increase certainly the yeah things. There's definitely other things you could maybe add on top of that 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 I think I would like to see in terms of standardization if. Astrologers were to start engaging in tests like that again. That actually raises a issue that I've been having recently, which I'm kind of nervous about. Which is uh, going back to that observation I've made, where I feel like in the past decade the skeptic community has kind of fallen apart, and we've seen a kind of decline in the leadership. Sometimes due to the loss of major leaders like James Randi, who who were at the center of things for several decades, yeah. or in other instances through. The sidelining of some of those figures through due to like social issues and, and different in politics and things like that. But um, I'm a little nervous that the current generation of astrologers who came in in this huge influx or this huge wave into the community over the past few years has so little experience dealing with the more militant sort of variety of scientific skepticism that they're going to be a little caught off guard and a little underprepared for. How to deal with some of those arguments compared to people back in the in the eighties and nineties, where that was like a more common um, thing that you had to deal with, like more frequently. Maybe I, you know, I, I don't know for sure because I haven't really been all that active in astrology in the last, you know, ten or twenty years. Really, uh, you know, I've kind of uh, stayed, you know, kept one foot in it, but I was doing other things and had my own health problems, but um. I think it should be part of any kind of astrological education, uh, uh, an understanding of, you know, criticisms of astrology. That should be a right. course, a required course, in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. Or, or yeah. doing, uh, you know, research to understand some of the different studies that have been done in the past and some of the, you know, pros and cons. Um, for those studies, like when it comes to like the Gogolin studies or the Vernon Clark trials yeah. or other things like that, like having done maybe like a literature review of some of that stuff. Yeah, there and people have written things about it. Uh, you know, the um, uh, there was uh, an article called "Debunking the Debunkers," and then that, that stirred them all up. Valerie Vaughn was the author of that, and uh, you know, th there's there's a history of arguing be with between astrologers and the skeptics and somebody if somebody could put all that together that would be a great book right there a great document and very useful for people new in astrology so they would understand what the criticisms are and what the the responses are 
I mean, is arguing with skeptics fundamentally productive? Because I feel like no, it is. There's a, I feel like there's a tendency sometimes early in one's studies of astrology to have that motivation to feel to like want to defend it more and, and to get into some of those arguments. But then eventually, later on, sometimes sometimes not always people mellow out or, or realize that sometimes it's not productive or that it's a waste of time, um, and maybe don't engage in that as much. Uh, yeah, do, do it's 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 a waste of time to argue with these people most of the time. Um, but I think what would be great is a collection of arguments between skeptics and astrologers in a book, but written by somebody who has a, you know a sociologist, for example, or a psychologist who would really be able to analyze where these people are coming from and what the argument means in a larger context. The argument, various arguments. Maybe historical connections to them and so on. Yeah, that, that would be interesting. I mean, I think, see, that's the kind of thing that astrologers would benefit from, being able to step out of the bubble and see, okay, there's an argument going on with this one group, and we know that it's just a waste of time to argue with them because, you know, they're, you know, they have a positivist philosophy and they're not going to really budge on it. But, but, we, but let's look at it in perspective. You know, what, what is it? What does it say about our culture? What does it say about you know, who's in charge and who's making definitions, and what does it say about astrology's strengths and weaknesses? These are the kind of, kinds of things that we could, you know, learn from, the, you know, the astrological community could learn from. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the ability to look at astrology critically has always been one of the major hallmarks of some of the greatest figures in the history of astrology, the greatest astrologers, and the ones who made the greatest contributions to uh, f- the understanding of the theory and philosophy and the way that astrology integrates with science and the natural world, you know, and, and that that's often a tension within those figures, like the Ptolemy type figures or the Kepler figures, where on the one hand, they can sometimes be highly critical of certain parts of the astrological tradition that they view as um, not valid or, or that doesn't work or is superstitious stuff that they want to reject and set aside versus um, the other parts of astrology that they view as valid or, or useful or effective in some ways and that they want to retain. And that's where you get Kepler's famous, you know, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater yeah. phrase. Yeah. Also, Francis Bacon had a lot, to, well, a good, deal on a, uh, a good deal to say on astrology and what should be thrown at and what shouldn't. But people have done this. People have talked about it, people in science, but nobody's really done it. You know, the distinction between astrology theory and astrology as a practice, you know, comes into play here. You know, uh, the, the practice, you know, follows its own path, just like, uh, you know, medicine does. A lot is determined, you know, on the fly through, you know, uh, experiences. And then, then it kind of gets back to the research area and they test it out and find out what might really be going on. But we don't have that in astrology. We just have practice. Mm-hmm. And, and, and it, it, it moves at its own pace. But it, we, what we need is to have uh, some way of organizing what's being learned, you know, and capturing it. You know, you know, these days we have some really good practitioners and, you know, eventually they write a book and you learn something about it. Um, but... Um, yeah, that used I, to be part of the, the role of the astrological organizations. And I feel like that's something that's changed recently that's been... Uh, issue with the community is that the astrological organizations are struggling to find um, relevance and to to stay relevant in, in contemporary times. And one of the things that they did that was a service previously 
like prior to the internet that was unique and, and was a very important feature of the community was have journals and publications so that there, there was some sort of um, centralized almost repository for publishing astrological research or for having discussions in the community. But um, you know, that's one of the things that with the rise of the internet that's that's almost become less relevant or useful. And it's one of the ways that the, the organizations are kind of struggling to reinvent themselves in in the early 21st century. I don't know if I would agree with that. You know, uh, NCGR, for example, has continuously published a journal. They had a magazine and a journal, Geocosmic Journal and what was the other one? There was two of them that came out. Now it's just down, down to one a year. And they publish articles. Right. And some of them are quite good. Scott Silverman edited one on, uh, you know, the outer, you know, uh, newly discovered bodies, you know, hyper, Kuiper belt objects and things like that. And I, I thought it was pretty good. You know, and people wrote some pretty good articles about it, talked about their experience. The problem is that if you're a practitioner, you don't have the time and probably not the knowledge to do, you know, a first-class reductionist science experiment on astrology and publish it. So, the, you know, the organizations, even though they may have been formed around the idea of doing that, International Society for Astrological Research, National Council for Geocosmic Research, that's what they wanted to do. But the reality is nobody's got the time or the knowledge to do it. It's just too hard to do without some, some kind of support. I was in, you know, worked at the university for a long time, and I know what that's about. You go begging to, you know, the National Science Foundation or somebody else to get money, and then you get $100,000. Then half of that goes to the university, and then now you've got $50,000 to work for a year on your project or, uh, you know, however long it might be. That, that's how you get stuff done. We don't have anything like that astrology. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess that's part of my point is that the you know the astrological organizations are largely run by are nonprofits that are largely run by unpaid <laughs> vol- volunteers right. whose numbers have declined drastically over the course of the past few decades and the contributions to those journals are just from whatever's available and most membership of the time, they're from membership largely yeah from membership um but then the membership is largely just um practitioners who are not necessarily researchers in the sense of uh these aren't primarily like scientific journals at this point no they're they, they can't be because right, astrologers that, don't don't know how to do reductionist science and and the subject's too hard to test mm, and right. there's no support for it you know g- give somebody a hundred thousand dollars you know that really knows astrology and they might be able to come up with a good test, and it might take them a couple of years, and then they make th- fifty thousand a year. And I think that was what part of your point at one point about conferences as well, which is that oftentimes it's more like market factors yeah. that that drive that drive the types of discussions that happen at conferences because um, people are more interested. Astrologers or astrology enthusiasts are more interested in learning techniques that they can use to apply to their own birth chart or to the charts of clients. Than they are typically in hearing about, you know, tests of astrology or statistical analysis of astrology and lectures like that tend to be far less, to attract less and and therefore to not be featured as much. And, and that's also a major shift I feel like in the astrological community in the past few decades. Yeah, 
I mean, astrology is market-driven largely, and, and, it, and it, it spills into the conferences. You have to have, you know, a, a topic that's going to draw people because then that brings in more people to the conference, and that allows the conference committee to pay for the expenses of having a trade show and all that. Right. Um, that's just how it works right now. You know, that's, that's how it's going. I mean, I, I think that the, the organizations have had their challenges. You know, they still seem to be going fairly well. Uh, they have uh, certification programs. NCGR has a, an old certification program that is uh, separate from NCGR now that I'm involved with. That's the, one of the, you know, one of my feet in astrology is in that. It's called Professional Astrologers Alliance. And, you know, there's an effort to update the exams, and it's, it's geared off Ken Negus's vision of a four-year college program in astrology. You know, so level one. Here's an exam that it assumes that you have, uh, you know, it's your freshman year. And there are equivalencies. Like if you go, to, go through the Kepler program and you get their certificate, you automatically qualify for levels one, two, and three. It's like you have your freshman, sophomore, and junior year completed. And then the senior year is more like, you know, you do your own report. And, uh, you know, there, there are different requirements for that. But it's, it's, it's something, you know, it's... You know, the organizations are doing something, and I think with, without them, astrology would be, you know, would be more impoverished. They, they play a role, and so do the schools. Kepler College and IAA, and there are a few others, and uh, they are, the, the organizations and the, the, the schools are right now, all the institutions, that they, they comprise the institutions that astrology has. They're not much. And they don't, you know, and they're mostly volunteers, you point out, but they're what we got. Yeah, they're, they're what we got for sure. And I, I just, I continue, to, I'm curious how that's going to grow and evolve and what steps could be taken to improve some of those things. And I do feel like there's a struggle to maintain relevancy of them to a certain extent amongst the younger generation of astrologers who hasn't seen as much about why they should become involved in those things or what the the benefit or advantages so that's something well, that's kind of going on as a, as a generational thing right now where it was more it was more necessary 30 years ago like those mailing lists for example that the astrological organizations put out that's where you heard about what was going on in the community but nowadays you hear what's going on in the community more so through social media and things like that so that's why i'm saying there's sometimes an attempt to they, uh, reinvent themselves or, or to, to understand what they're Relevancy can be in the modern period where some of those things have shifted a little bit. Yeah, I think that the organizations which were formed in a time where there was no internet, mm -hmm. uh, you know, need to adjust to the internet. I mean, that, that, that's what happens. You know, you, you, uh, if you're born in it, you know, uh, my son is 35 years old. He knows exactly how to run that work in that world. You mm -hmm. know, I'm older. I, you know, I've, I've figured it out enough to get by, but I'm, you know, no expert. If I had to market myself as an astrologer right now, uh, I would have to do a lot of work. I would have to, you know, put a lot into it. So it is, right. it's a, it's a different medium and the organizations, you know, are using it. They're not using it, you know, entirely. Um, I think that there are other factors involved too. If you're a libertarian, you don't really want a group. You, you just kind of want to operate on your own. And I think that the organizations represent a kind of, uh, you know, a social responsibility aspect, not that they all deliver it, but it's, it's a, it comes out of a, of a group model, like we all, we, we're all in it together, you know, so again, it, it does reinforce the astrological bubble, 
in some ways, you know, but it also uh, provides a community, you know, where information can be shared and that's, that's focused around something. You know, those two organizations, ESAR and NCGR, they were originally focused around research, as you point out, and now the research is too hard to do and nobody's qualified to do it. So what, what are they? They're a social group of some sort. They're a social group that brings together amateurs, people who love the subject and some professionals. And, uh, you know, I think you're absolutely right. They, there is a search for relevance and meaning as time goes on. We'll, we'll see how that unfolds. Yeah, I mean, the fact that both of them have research in their titles, but that research and what that means is not the same as when they were set up in the 1970s and 80s, I think is a good example of yeah. that, that shift. Um, one thing I wanted to make sure I ask you about is a, a term and a phrase that you use like multiple times throughout the book that I always associate with you, and I always thought it was like one of the best phrases ever, is uh, for a birth chart, you call it a, a time slice, or for an astrological chart, you call it a time slice. It is. Uh, what does that mean, or could you explain, could you expand on that? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I, I don't like the use of the word horoscope for a chart, because I don't think it's quite that accurate. As, as I understand it, it's, it means like view of the hour, right? Means like hour, hour marker. Hour marker, so it probably refer more to the ascendant. I would think, yeah, it origi because, originally meant to the ascendant in the first you know, the, house. The, 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 the in the history of trigonometry, you know the uh, you know the challenge of calculating the ascendant goes down as like one of the biggest things ever. I mean, that's what they were going for. They were going for that ascendant, that horoscope. Anyway, I don't think it's, I think it's it, it is, the, the word's been ruined by all these newspaper columns and so on. So I okay, prefer to sure. call it a birth chart. Mm -hmm. But the birth chart itself is a, a, a photograph of the sky. And, you know, if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, you're looking south. East is to your left and west is to your right. It's a shot. It's a, you know, so uh, it's a time like a slice. Snapshot. It's a snapshot or a time slice because that's what a time uh, snapshot is. And mm -hmm. it's a term that's used in the sciences. Um, in, uh, you know, geoscience, I've heard it used there. But I think there are a few other places. But it makes, it makes the most sense to me. Um, um, I see it as one of the two primary techniques that the subject of astrology employs in as analyzing the self-organizing systems that are its subject matter, the time slice and Did the cycle. Did you get it from geoscience? Is that where you picked it up? I, I may have. Uh, you know, uh, I'm trying to think where else I may have gotten it from philosophy. I'm, I'm not sure. Because that actually makes sense because I'm thinking of like sometimes when you, you drive through the mountains here in Denver, like a highway that they've cut through a mountain, sometimes you'll drive through and on, on the side you'll just see the different sedimentary, the different layers of sediment and you, you realize that you're seeing, you know, stuff that built up over hundreds yeah. and thousands and millions of years, but that one of those little layers, you know, is what you're talking about is a, is a time slice. Yeah, you see that in marine cores and, and ice cores, you know, where you're, you're looking for uh, history of the atmosphere and the oceans you know and uh you know so you have a core and you slice it at some point and if since you're measuring time and what was going on in those times you can call it a time slice but you know it's a good question i've been using it for a long time and i i i probably got it from geosciences but i'm not positive i i may have run across it in some other anyway it stuck sure. with me i just thought it made the most sense uh, you know this is what we're doing as astrologists we're analyzing a time slice calculated for a, a moment of that, you know, of uh, 
you know, a tipping point of some sort, transition point, uh, a bifurcation is the word I use in the book often. But it, we also use cycles. And in the past in astrology, those were called revolutions. You know, um, cycles of Jupiter and Saturn and things like that. It's kind of a broad use for the term revolution, wouldn't you say? Because, you know, you can use, but, but it's not a heart. You're not talking about time slices or charts then with revolutions, except yeah. when, when something crosses the, say, the vernal equinox. Yeah, a revolution. It's just the, going back to the original meaning of that, which is a return to something or for a cycle to be completed right. and for something to come back to where it started. Yeah, so it's like it's a, it's kind of like a cycles thing. So I would say astrology analyzes is you know time slices and cycles. And those are the yeah. two main approaches. And I, and I love that. And there's something really important there about the phrasing it as a time slice that gets to the heart of sort of the like the title of your book. What is the nature of astrology? But when you conceptualize a let's just say a birth chart for the sake of argument instead of generalizing it to any astrological chart, but you're taking um, something where time is always flowing and you have like a start point, like point A, and then yeah. eventually it flows to point B, but it's like a continuous process that never stops moving and the planets always keep moving in their orbits and their cycles and their movements through the solar system. But then at the moment of a birth chart, you freeze that and you take a snapshot right. of that yeah. moment in time and where the planets are placed relative to each other in their orbits. And there's something about that slice of time then that becomes important for describing the, the nature of what happened in that moment as well as its future, essentially. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the time slice shows where you are amongst all the various cycles that are going on, all the revolutions. Right? And so, you know, they, the, you know, the uh, astrology has developed all sorts of techniques to unpack information stored that way in the time slice. Right. Um, so like aspects, you know, like applying and separating, you know, that would be like one obvious uh, approach. Mm -hmm. So that, and, and that's fundamental to your conceptualization of the, the nature of astrology and, and what it is that it's the study of those time slices within the context of self-organizing systems like yeah. humans, but also other self-organizing systems on Earth. Yeah. You know, there could be, you know, like, uh, you know, non-human animals. You know, you could do charts for gorillas. Yeah, I think you actually cited a study at some point that, that somebody had done about dogs. Dogs, and yeah, right. Different types of dogs that had different measurable not just their personalities in a in a in a weird sense or or in like a human sense but it, in the terms of like their um like different dogs have more aggressive personalities or different things like that and that somebody had tried to study that yeah the breeders write down the the personalities of the dogs you know because the buyers mm -hmm. want to know that and um uh what's her name um uh Fouchot, it's a French uh, hyphenated name, I can't think of it off, off the top of my head right now, but she wrote a number of uh, scientific uh, papers that related astrology to biology, and they're, they're very good. Um, and she did one with the dogs, and, and it's basically a replication of Gawkelin, except using dogs. Because mm. so it, point it there. tracks the diurnal cycle, you know, correlating with the personality of the dogs. So the point there may be that 
<clears throat> would be like in your view that there's something universal about astrology and how it works that it doesn't just have to be applied to humans even though it's most commonly done in that context through birth charts but that astrological charts or time slices can be applied to other living entities that have um you know a, a life cycle or or like a temporal component to their existence yeah and things that are are not living you know things like uh you know decisions or you know electional astrologies you know you you compute your own time slice you know when you want to make a move but there is yeah, a tendency that, in astrology to be very anthropocentric and i think that's not good in general yeah, the, i think that's a bad thing i think that humans got to get out of that that's that's as you know that that's the equivalent of like the earth is in the center of the solar system it's like humans are in the center of the solar system the the electional the application to the, of that to electional and horary astrology was the part that I was like the most uncertain about in terms of the extension of some of the causal arguments um, to astrology and how that would work because that's the point where astrology starts to be the more be much more abstract and symbolic and sort of removed from the more like biological considerations that might be more relevant when we're talking about like humans or dogs or what have you yeah well. You know, this, this, the subject of higher order systems, self-organizing systems, which would include personality, the mind, group behaviors, and so on, it's pretty new. You know, we don't know a lot about it. And I try to explain some of it in the last chapter, you know, and then show how that, that, that information could be very relevant to explaining horary and electional astrology. But... um. You know, I mentioned a number of authors there, and you know, if somebody was really interested, they could see that. Yeah, papers are being published on it. The philosophers talk about em emergence, and you know, so do scientists. It's, um, it's a, a a new area. I think uh, I think I mentioned somewhere that I think it's as uh, radical as quantum mechanics, except that it just hasn't gained traction because it's spread out among a whole bunch of disciplines. Yeah, one point that you started getting to that I thought was really interesting that might be at the core of it and could perhaps be developed more at some point as it, it almost seemed like you're saying at one point that anything that has any self-organizing system that has a bifurcation at some point that to the extent that you can cast a chart or a time slice for that moment of bifurcation or that moment where something in, 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 in its existence meets a, um, a fork in the road where yeah. it can go one direction or another, that the analysis of that temporal moment in time um, is anything that experiences that that you can you can use astrology to analyze that both that temporal moment in time as well as uh, project it out into the future yeah 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 you could see its trajectory yeah it's almost reminiscent of uh, you know Lorenz the butterfly effect guy you know he found out that if he, he put all these you know um, this information about whether you know to model it, and he found that if he changed the starting point, the results were completely different. You know, so it's to me that's like a kind of an analogy to what happens in astrology. You have this starting point. In the case of people, it's the transition from water breathing to air breathing, and you know, separation from the mothership. So it's a, a bifurcation point, a big, big shift and change. Uh, and uh, you know, you look at that time slice, and then you got a good sense of where things are going. But it, you know, could it have been at a different time, and things would be different? Yeah. So that, to me, that gets into some really important things because it starts to become more about the study of astrology. Starts to become more about the nature of time, or there's something there's something there 
it starts getting to the mechanism underlying astrology being such something much broader that has to do with time, the nature of time, and the role that time plays in our experience of of reality or in nature. Um, that's that's hard to at- articulate, but it was something you were starting to point to there that seemed very important towards the end of the book. Yeah, the, it, it you know I I really you know there's there's so many unanswered questions you know but yeah there's you know what is really going on in astrology is going to require a lot more knowledge than we have right now about things like time and about things like uh, internal time. Um, I, I bring up ideas about imprinting, you know, in cases of, uh, you know, human development, you know, t- time, the timing, the planet's timing windows of imprint vulnerability, and basically encoding certain kind of patterns and that they they relate to the planets, some of the inner planets. You know, I, I don't say that that's an explanation for all of astrology, but I think that's kind of where things might be going. Um, I, d- I do state pretty clearly that. I, I, I think that a lot of astrology might be explainable, maybe not, you know, maybe not right now. Uh, you know, there needs to be more work done in some of the other sciences and that this is, you know, uh, the present moment in some ways is like poor John Goad trying to do his study of astrometeorology in the middle of the 17th century and not having access to reliable thermometers and barometers and, you know, weather vanes and actually had that, uh, you know, uh, yeah, you know, hygrometers, all sorts of you know instrumentation. I mean, modern science is based on instrumentation, which produces units that you can do reductionist science with. You also didn't have statistics; you just had you know you know you had averages, you know more or less that sort of thing. So I think astrology today is is at a similar point. We just don't have the science. We have the beginnings, I think, of the science, the science of self-organizing systems. We have the beginnings of that. Well, we don't have enough. But I think that astrology as a field should pay more attention to that and should define itself as a subject. And, you know, whether it doesn't have the institutional power to fund research and theory, it should just be more aware of it. You yeah. know, whether the internet is going to be able to bring that to enough people and where enough people are going to get it, I don't know. But, uh, we, you know, we... we you know, I, I think astrology will su- survive as a subject, but I think it could do a lot better if there was a little more awareness that it's not limited to practice. Yeah, I mean, I think after reading your book, I think it's up there on the level of of cosmos and psyche in terms of important discussions about the nature of astrology yeah. that will be very impactful on the next generation of astrologers, and it doesn't have the same aim as cosmos and psyche and that your book is not trying to prove astrology or or necessarily demonstrate um its validity through case studies or something like that or or examples but it's trying to explain astrology and where it's at now and how it got there how it got here and to present that to um a, a more intellectual audience in order to give people a sort of like heads up about the subject and what what it's what the deal is with it, um, as well as some statements about where it might head in the future and how uh, the trajectory of astrology might be improved, so that the place of astrology might be improved in society at some point in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's 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 just about it. Yeah, you know, I think uh, it's um, a call to break out of the bubble. <laughs> 
and look around. Stick your head out of the bubble and look around. Mm. Like that old medieval woodcut, a Renaissance woodcut. Right. So that on the one hand, that's an encouragement for people outside of the astrological community to stick their head outside of the bubble and see that there might be something to astrology. But then on the other side, it's also an encouragement for astrologers to stick their head outside of the bubble of the astrological community and to try to engage in other fields of research and other disciplines that might be uh, helpful to astrology or might be interrelated and might be necessary to learn and specialize in in order to get anywhere closer to either creating a grand unified system of astrology again that integrates with other sciences or in terms of getting closer to trying demonstrating some sort of validity of astrology to the public. Yeah, yeah, raising the uh, level of the field, you know. Raising the uh, the level of understanding, the caliber of the practitioner, the um, you know the the uh, general understanding of uh, where astrology has been, where it's at, and where it might go. I you know it's that's what I hope for. You know, I, I invested a lot of my life in astrology. Uh, you know, it's one of my major identity points, and so I, I hope to see it progress. Yeah, well, I, I definitely I can already see and anticipate that works like this and like cosmos and psyche together will probably be the works that are necessary in order to um, appeal to and explain astrology uh, and, and to sort of make the case for astrology to somebody in the future that's going to come along at some point just like at times in the past like when we get like a ptolemy figure or a kepler figure who are just like these polymaths that try to uh, take astrology and integrate it with the contemporary views about how the cosmos works and creates a new paradigm then that lasts for several centuries at that point and makes astrology acceptable again by giving it a cosmological framework. And, and I'm, I have a pretty good feeling that your book will be one of the ones on the bookshelf of the person who comes along at some point in the future and, and does that. Well, that's, that's nice to think about. I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody from outside of astrology, you know, comes into the field at some point and really does something with it. Because I've seen a few things like this. I've uh, I've seen some people in um, meteorology, for example, um, you know, really apply some pretty sophisticated, complex and complex astrological techniques to uh, you know weather formations stuff that I would never think about because I don't know meteorology. But, you know, somebody from psychology, for example, could come into the field and revolutionize it. And we yeah. have the software now. You know, that's, that's one thing that, that is wonderful. I'm having the software to do astrology. Wow, I remember the days when I was cranking it out on a slide rule. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. Back in the old days with the, the cuneiform tablets and stuff. Yeah. Well, actually, I summarized the whole... You know, what I learned about calculating charts in a book. Did you ever see that book that I wrote, Astrological Chart Calculations? Uh, I did. That was a very heavy, that's actually more, surprisingly more heavy read than some of the science chapters of this book. <laughs> I think I sold a hundred copies. But okay. you know, uh, Margaret, uh, you know, Cahill from Wessex Astrology, uh, Astrology also puts it out now. Hmm. But um, that was, that's kind of a summary of what I learned when, you know, before computers. Yeah. Um, well, one of the last things I want to say was just that I, I was very influenced by um, Jeffrey Cornelius's argument uh, for the past 15, 20 years or so 
as well as as I got into ancient astrology and studied Hellenistic astrology and and understood the pre-Ptolemaic views of astrology that were more based on the mechanism of astrology working through signs and omens and, and something approximating synchronicity, that I've been very taken by that argument and very taken by the notion that astrology, uh, the mechanism underlying astrology is a causal um, for a number of years. But I've had this thing in the back of my head for a number of years where I also realized that traditionally astrology was associated with Mercury. And there's many different areas when it comes to Mercury, where Mercury traditionally always like straddles the divide between two different seemingly irreconcilable positions, like you know, night and day, uh, masculine and feminine, or what have you. And oftentimes with astrology, you run into a similar issue where sometimes it's when you have what looks like an either-or situation, sometimes it ends up being both. And one of the most one of the biggest things that your book kind of impressed on me was. That um, while I've thought about astrology entirely and conceptualized it in a causal framework, um, definitely the first few chapters have opened up the question that maybe one shouldn't completely uh, reject the notion that there could ever be any sort of causal mechanisms to astrology that could um, play some sort of role in the overall reason why astrology works or the reason why it does what it does, and that that doesn't have to be fundamentally incompatible with the other view necessarily yeah i mean one of the things i'm trying to do in the book is you know emphasize the importance of natural astrology right right you know which Mm -hmm. would include astrometeorology it would would include mundane astrology and all that and uh you know pay a little bit more uh, attention to that and see that there are, are causal mechanisms for it and then you know look at the human situation um as uh you know a a particular case in nature and uh you know try to understand that as best we can using you know what's known about self-organizing systems higher order self-organizing systems which some people call meta-cybernetic you know more complicated both physical and mental at the same time and learn what we can learn but uh you may have also caught my drift that I, i don't make any claims for one thing or the other i'm just kind of this harmonious observer that's going along in my life and uh you know i i, I make some st- statements about things like calling like calling astrology divination i don't think is helpful yeah i mean i do think you strongly reject the no, the conceptualization of astrology as divination and you also see t- all of astrology is divination i mean you know and and divination you know you can you can call a lot of things like a good guess is you know kind of divination or or maybe uh you know um uh election predictions is divination by you know for some people you know they may they make a call and they don't use you know statistics on it well no i mean divination is actually a very specific class of practices that often take a random or chance like allotment of something in nature yeah throw the dice yeah throw the dice throw the tarot cards or throw the coins yeah. in the i ching but then contrary to how that would work out if you if you kept doing that over and over again on a long enough timeline and statistically it would always just be 50-50 that you take the singular moment of that chance like allotment and you interpret it as having symbolic significance and in that moment it actually does um even though if you were to take it outside of that moment statistically 
like it wouldn't necessarily work out if you just kept doing it over and over again because that's it's something about the nature of chance um having a, a, a real symbolic import in that moment of the inquiry if the inquiry has a charge or something important to it and the argument is that that's what astrology that's what birth charts are that's what horary charts are and mm-hmm. everything else because they're connected with this notion of a chance like allotment um so that's contrary though to the notion that astrology is based on regularly recurring causal celestial forces that can be tested and analyzed statistically like through the Gokland studies and stuff like that and that's really in the future sort of post your work is going to be the debate that astrologers are going to have is between those two two different camps because they're a little bit in, in conflict with each other and and while well, that debate's shifted more on the divinatory side over the past 30 years your book reminds me that um different astrologers have different views on that and then it's not necessarily always 100% per se well i think that you know labeling astrology as divination and labeling astrology as nothing more than a practice i think is the easy way out I mean, that's the simple answer. I think it's a little bit more complicated, and I'm not saying that I have the answer to it. I mean, I, I, I've experimented with different kinds of divination systems. I published a book on one based on ancient Mexican, you know, uh, uh, divination and astrology. I, you know, I used to, you know, I'd, I'd be playing with my band and uh, a lot. You know, I used to play every weekend, and I would have astro dice. And I, mm. I would entertain people on, on breaks with that. I'd have them uh, roll the, think of a question, roll the dice, and I would, I would give them an answer. And I was like pretty accurate on it. And then I decided to put together a, a, a deck of business cards. So I collected all these business cards from people. And I would carry that along with me. And I would do like, I basically use a tarot-like pattern. I would read the business cards. And I would get good results from it. You know? So I know that stuff goes on. And I, I think what it has to do with is some of these you know, emergent, uh, you know, self-organizing systems out of human minds. And, and this is an area that has just not been fully researched. So basically what I'm saying is that even, even divination at this point uh, is a candidate for a much better explanation for what it is. So you're not fundamentally opposed to the concept of divination or the practice because you've practiced it yourself to yeah, some extent in the past, yeah. but you you think I, it's I can a, douse, I douse, you know, I can do that stuff. But you think it's a sort of like a cop-out when it comes to just saying that that's all, all astrology is. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's the purpose of some of your first two chapters in talking about different ways in which the celestial, celestial uh, influences do influence Earth and its, its um, biosphere and life on Earth to a certain extent. Yeah, well, there's plenty of evidence behind that. Yeah, I mean, you know, life has evolved in a temporal environment. And the temporal environment is driven by geophysical and astronomical, you know, realities. You know, the moon is swinging around and the sun is doing its thing and the length of day is changing and the length, you know, it's, we're bombarded with this information. It's baked in. Right. So, but the question will be, and this is what will be debated between astrologers, is that there's is that the same as or is there a jump getting from there to saying that you know mars in the seventh house in a day chart 
or, or let's say Saturn in a night chart in the seventh house will correlate with somebody that gets you know a divorce or something at the age of 30 at their Saturn return or something like that. But there starts being other what seem like more symbolic um, considerations in astrology that sometimes the more naturalistic or causal explanations, it's harder to see how those would apply or how that would make sense? Well, it is hard to see that. I mean, I, I've, I'm suggesting, a, you know, like a, um, a perspective, you know, looking at these higher order self-organizing systems, which may be hypersensitive to, to all sorts of little things that go on. And there may be other forces yet to be discovered. We just don't know. Mm-hmm. I, all I'm saying is that, you know, yeah, there are, other, there, there are many ways to look at astrology and just like, you know, reducing it to divination, I think, is, is a, um, a lazy way out. That's not to diminish anything that, you know, Jeffrey Cornelius has done because he's written a lot of really good things and looked at ancient astrology. And um, I liked his book. I just think that there may be a lot more to divination than we think. Yeah. I think, and I think the point is also just that um, any there shouldn't be any blanket rejection of that there could be a mechanism just because a mechanism is not currently known, and that people perhaps need to keep an open mind about that possibility, especially if the phenomenon of astrology itself keeps pointing to these correlations between celestial movements and earthly events. Yeah. I think that, you know, at any given point in history, we don't know everything. I just read, uh, um, you know, Foucault's book, Madness and Civilization. I found it at the dump the other day. And, uh, you know, he's this French uh, structuralist, postmodernist writer. But it was good because he basically showed how the uh, societal understanding of madness has changed drastically over the centuries and only recently are are we starting to get it together and of course even right now the psychologists are still trying to work out what a personality disorder is so you know if if you think if you if you look at that and how recently our understanding of mental illness and that sort has you know come into focus you got to look at astrology and say oh come on we got a long way to go Right. And I think you actually cite a couple of instances in the past in science where there's been a phenomenon that was discovered or identified before and, and recognized before the mechanism for it was known. Yeah, like electricity. Okay. Yeah, How did could you explain that? Or, a bit? or heat. Heat is that was the I think that was the heat, example yeah. I gave. Yeah. They didn't know what heat was. You know, and they you know, it, it took took years, decades before it was, you know reduced to uh you know uh an under you know reduced to a, a an understanding and a formula you know right. it, it just wasn't known what it was but you you know you could do a lot with heat you can get a stove going and boil water and make a steam engine you know right and all of those things were done before eventually developing like a a scientific understanding of the processes behind heat and how to control and and recreate well, i mean even before then, people were controlling and manipulating things like fires and were able to use it yeah. before it was like known exactly like what a fire is or how, it's, how it works. Yeah, knowledge progresses. It's not static. You know, that, you know there's uh, a lot of, uh, there's, you know, first you start with know-how on something like that. And then, then maybe uh, you eventually build a theory and, uh, and you model it. Hmm. Other, other things um, start with theory first and then are discovered. 
So knowledge is, uh, you know, acquiring knowledge is a time-consuming process, but I think uh, it's the way to go. Yeah, you know? and that's your primary. This is primarily yeah. also by the end of the book. It seems like an ex uh, encouraging or asking astrologers to take that ne next step beyond the practice to start exploring and trying to formulate a theory of how astrology works and to try to find yeah. that. Yeah, to look at other fields, you know, you know, you, when you're isolated in a bubble, you don't look to anything else. But I'm, that's not saying everybody in astrology is like that. I know people in astrology that are involved in other fields of research as well. But that's where, you know, cross-fertilization is, is the, what, what you really need to grow something like astrology mm. as, yeah. as, a, as a subject. That makes yeah, sense. So, yeah, so anyway, I just, you know, I, I just think that the search for a simplistic answer right now is not is not doesn't contribute to growth mm. it, it it solves a problem pretty quickly and then you're done with it but i think that as you point out my first two chapters are you know just throwing all this reality up on the table and saying well what do we do with this right yeah yeah well and and the book itself ends up becoming partially like your personal reflections and research about after a lifetime worth of research and work in the field of astrology and i, and I think it's really major achievement from that standpoint for sure and was really brilliant and yeah i'm really glad that you you wrote it so thanks for for writing this well thank book. you chris i appreciate that yeah um well i look forward to so the title of the book is it's titled the nature of astrology history philosophy and the science of self-organizing systems it's published by inner traditions which lately has started getting into publishing astrology books and they're just doing an amazing job publishing a ton of really great books lately. I think I've interviewed like two other authors. I interviewed Eric Perdue last year who did a translation of Agrippa that was published through them. Um, yeah. What are your so I, I, people can find it in bookstores, they can order it online on Amazon or anywhere else. We can order um, directly from inner traditions. I think they give a discount. Okay. Good yeah. to know. Uh, so just Google inner traditions or go to looks like their website is innertraditions.com. Yeah. Uh, what's next for you, or what you, you're going to publish in the other like 500 page tomes, or or what? What are your plans for the future? I got to get my body. Uh, I got to survive. You know, I have uh, had a couple of accidents and two spinal surgeries. I have uh, you know a cervical myelopathy, um, and uh, you know there's a lot that you have to do to maintain it. You know, and kind of slows you down a lot. Yeah, I mean, I noticed your Saturn is at 22. Uh, Leo on the ascendant to 24 Leo, and your moon, like mine, is in Aquarius. So you've been going through this lovely, you've been going through a Saturn <laughs> opposition recently and Saturn yeah. opposite your ascendant. And before that, starting in 2020, it was like going over your moon. So hopefully, that, that, you know, that upcoming ingress of Saturn into Pisces and finally getting out of Aquarius after the past three years will help. Maybe, but you, know, you, get, you get older and then you have these uh, you know, slowly degenerating situations. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, to, to bring in uh, some Uranian astrology, I have the sun square to Hades, which is uh, deterioration. You know, so I have you know basically a very slowly deteriorating situation with my spinal cord that you know needs to be slowed down. <laughs> and what you know, one of the effects is just being dizzy. You know, having mm -hmm. what's called cervical dizziness. So anyway, you know, you know, you could look at it in my chart. You could see that. Health, health problems are an issue and they particularly get, you know, with Saturn, you know, they come on when you're older and I, you know. Yeah. And you mentioned Uranian astrology is one of your other specialties and you've yeah. also 
done work on Mesoamerican astrology or, or yeah. May- Mayan astrology? Well, uh, Uranian astrology I got into very early and you know, I had, uh, you know, Gary Kristen and I kind of started, got that going. And, uh, we, you know, we, uh, you know, he, you know, we knew, uh, Hans Nigemann, Gary, Gary brought me over to, we, two, two of us went over to his house one time and we saw him at conferences. And so I learned a lot of Uranian early on, got into ancient astrology early with, uh, A.H. Blackwell back when just pretty much Manilius and Ptolemy and a few fragments was just about all that was known, you know, so I got into that. And then I got interested in Mesoamerican because there were, here was an opportunity to understand how astrology might have originated in an entirely different culture. And so I got into that, wrote, wrote on that extensively. Mm-hmm. Um, but meanwhile, we just practiced uh, kind of a, a mixture of standard astrology, you know, a few ideas from here and there, old ideas, new ideas, Uranian ideas, and built yeah. a practice around it. Well, and it seems like that's giving you a great perspective and amount of yeah. depth, especially when you start analyzing the astrological community and, and the different trends and different things in it in the final chapters of the book that are very um, perceptive and just your analysis of those was, was very on point in terms of things you said about the community and your, your sort of assessment of the community as well as your uh, predictions about current trends and where some of that might, might take us in the future. Yeah. Well, I, I hope, uh, you know, people get to read it and get something out of it. It's, um, you know, to answer your last question, I mean, this, this was a, a big job and I, you know, the, the uh, uh, you know, pandemic helped in a way, you know, the quarantine helped, helped me get it done. But uh, at this point, I'm not sure where to go. I may, I may write some technical papers, but I don't think I could ever do anything like this again. Mm. <laughs> I wouldn't yeah. want to. Yeah, this but is some a, scientific papers. You know, I have a few on um, uh, ResearchGate and Academia.edu. You ever go to those places? Uh, People yeah, put their of papers up there. Yeah, I mean, Academia yeah. has been amazing over the past decade for making research more accessible, more po- yeah, uh, yeah, than it used to be. I think I have one of your papers linked in uh, one of my Kepler courses. One okay. on uh, on. Uh, and I have an online course called Symmetry in Astrology. And mm. I think I have a paper that you wrote on uh, the parts, the lots. Okay. Yeah. The yeah, theoretical just, rationale for this. Did those. I get it from academia? Did you have it up there? Or where did I get that from? Maybe Probably, your yeah, website. I've, I've posted my, my uh, papers there on, on academia. I have an account, so that is probably where you got it. Um, yeah. So I linked it. And so my students have to read it. So thank you. Okay. Well, I've got a, <laughs> it, I've got it a book. It was public, so I, I just took it. Yeah. Link to it, you know. That's fine. I've got a book as well. Um, I know you. your book. Yeah, very yeah. good book. Thank you for doing that. Somebody had to do it. Yeah. Well, and um, I know I need to wrap this up, but that was actually an interesting point. Is that you also expressed some like um, reservations about astrological fundamentalism, and why you appreciate the like looking back into the sources and especially the historical reconstruction of astrology, which is something you've taken advantage of to a certain extent in your book and like a huge chunk of it you also warn against too much fundamentalism and, and seem yeah. kind of nervous nervous about that trend well i think that there could be a little bit too much of of certain things you know i mean there are people that tend to get into say uh uh hindu vedic astrology right and then it becomes their whole world you know people get into hellenistic astrology and uh you know it becomes a hundred percent of their their work I mean, it's okay if you want to do that, but I, 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 I see it as like, um, 
you know, a subcategory. And uh, there could be, um, well, you know, I always think of, you know, my friend Bob Zoller, we used to go camping, hiking together, and he was always saying, you know, we would have all these discussions. He would say, oh, the old ways are the good ways. Right. You know, and he would do that. And I think that, you know, you learn from the past, but it's, you know, it's like, you know, do we want to practice uh, Hippocratic and Galenic medicine in its entire, in its pure form? I don't think so. Well, you know, there's a lot to be learned from it, but, um, you know, I think that uh, ancient astrology, all kinds of astrologists needs a lot more testing and, you know, sorting out and so on, uh, you know, how well, you know, the, uh, you know, perfections work. You know, it's a good question, you know, and, uh, you know, we, what you do, and I think it's a great thing is try to, you know, flesh out what these people were doing. We have to know what they were doing before we can decide what, whether this, the, you know, the, the uh, technique works as well and how it is to be employed. So somebody's got to do that. Yeah, for sure. One of the things actually, it's funny about my history with you is I got into ancient astrology and studying Hellenistic astrology just like a semester before I started taking your courses back at Kepler. So unfortunately, it was probably one of my regrets in my educational history is I got I got super into and, and did that initial passion of the convert type uh, thing by the time I was studying with you so that I would sometimes be at Kepler like reading those translations of the ancient texts instead of focusing on some of the more modern texts that we had moved into at that point where we were talking about things like secondary progressions or solar arcs or things like that. And I remember some like distinct like instances like that at, at symposiums when I was taking some of your classes. So I'm happy <clears throat> in a way that with this book that things have come full circle. <laughs> and I feel like I've I've come back around to the position of seeing the value of both ancient and modern astrology. And um and this book uh has brought me full circle on some other philosophical issues to a certain extent. So I'm happy that how things sort of work out like that in the end. Yeah, I remember. I remember you and uh, George and I were teaching uh, a course on progressions and solar arcs and transits, and and you were in and out of it. I think you know you asked for permission to, you know, sit in. I think it was uh, you know Nick was giving lectures in the other room or something on the ancient astrology. Nick and Rob. Oh yeah, on the, yeah. And like the history of astrology. Yeah, yeah, we trusted you. We just said, yeah, go ahead, do what you want to do. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I apologize. I mean, part of the issue was just that I had studied modern astrology for yeah. four well, or five years. Well, you seemed years. to know what you were doing. I mean, we grilled you. You seemed to know what you were doing. So, all right, right. fine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, we, you know, there, go ahead. We, were, we weren't going to bust your chops, you know. I mean, if you didn't know it, the subject matter, we wouldn't have let you do it. For sure. Yeah. But you were very gracious about it uh, as I was going through that, like, early stage of being fascinated about traditional astrology yeah. and um that was one of, that was the beauty of that stage of kepler college was you know having all these just great lectures and different things at the time of astrologers teaching astrology at a very high level and i i've always felt like i was super lucky to be the beneficiary of that from people like you and from rob hand and and Demetra george and nick campion and everyone else yeah. well you were at, at the perfect time to get immersed in ancient astrology. As I mentioned before, I was interested in it, you know, 20 or 30 years earlier. There just wasn't that much known. Right. And then when the three Roberts got together and started, you know, translating it, I mean, that made all the difference. And you were right there when that was happening. Yeah. Well, yeah and, then that, I, was, and then I went and lived there, like at Project Times yeah. over two years. That's why I was sort of yeah. caught up in all of that. But great um, opportunity, really. 
you know? Yeah, but I still, you know, drawing from my influence of, of learning modern astrology and different things from you at Kepler, knew not to go full like astrological fundamentalism. Yeah. And that's why, I end, <laughs> that's why I sort of ended my book on the note that yeah. I did that it's really important that even though I'm encouraging people to go back and study ancient astrology and that there's something valuable to be learned from the past, um, that astrology is always in a constant state of flux and change. And um, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't synthesize and integrate it with some of the great insights and developments in the future. Yeah. And I think that's a lot, of, a lot of what you've focused on in your work and tried to show the best pieces of is, is doing a sort of like high-level modern astrology as, as an intellectual. Yeah, in a way. I mean, you got to know your roots. You have to understand where astrology came from. And I, I, you know, credit people digging into the history of astrology with giving astrology the foundation that it had lacked was being owned by the historians and the historians of science, and they weren't very friendly. So, you know, this, mm. this is a very good thing. Um, but in regard to astrological fundamentalism, you know, to me, the, the coincidence of Project Hindsight the rise of fundamentalism, you know, taking over the, the Republican Party, and my own interest in Mesoamerican astrology, you know, they were all at the same time. That's kind mm -hmm. of what, I, what I'm referring to. I, I, I did notice that that was happening, that there was this kind of, you know, uh, you know maybe it was, had something to do with, you know, the, the outer planets moving into different signs. You know, Pluto went through Sagittarius and then through, you know, through Capricorn as a lot of this was happening, but particularly mm -hmm. in Sagittarius. You had this rise of fundamentalism, and it seemed to have a little effect on astrology as well, and I was part of that. I mean, there was Project Hindsight was going on at exactly the same time as I was digging into Mesoamerican astrology. Unfortunately, I couldn't communicate in, you know, in this exactly the same way, and I didn't have any, any, anybody, no one else was really doing it, but it was the same kind of thing. That's really interesting because also the Vedic focus on Indian astrology in and the, the West. And the Indian came in on that too, yeah. That was all what what I saw in retrospect, or what I've studied, and I did a paper on this at one point. I think it was in the NCGR journal. Was how that coincides with the Uranus-Neptune conjunction in 1992-93, and if you project that back, every time that conjunction happens, you'll see astrologers suddenly doing this thing of looking back into the past and then synthesizing what they find with the contemporary astrology of that time period. And there's a bunch of astrologers like Lily or um, Bonatti or other people like that down through history that. Have done through and gone through similar time periods. Yeah, yeah. So that seems to be yeah. what we're in right now in terms of the synthesis of modern and ancient. And um, you've really you've made a really great case for integrating some of the modern insights and philosophy and conceptualization and scientific studies uh, in con that have happened over the past century with all of that ancient wisdom that's been revived relatively recently. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, hey, well, I, I got to thank you for allowing me to articulate some of the details there, because there are some things in my book that could be misunderstood if people didn't read thoroughly or didn't read all of it. But you've allowed me to, you know, uh, clarify where I'm coming from, and I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, thank you for so much for your time today. I know this is a three-hour episode, so we'll wrap it up. But um, yeah, I encourage people to read the book. I tried to get as much as in as I could. I just finished reading this like 10 minutes before we started, <laughs> and there's... So much more there, so I definitely recommend people checking it out because we've only skimmed the surface of some of the great things. I know my friend Nick Diggin Best, who read this and really liked it, he was telling me to ask you about a couple of figures. We're not going to be able to do it, but maybe in a follow-up episode about like John H. Nelson, for example, or Edward R. Dewey, and some of their work studying 
um, cycles, celestial yeah. cycles yeah. and how that's yeah. actually shown up. But maybe we can save that for a future episode. Okay. Yeah, I'm not going anywhere. I just, you know, I'm just staying right here. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Well, great job uh, on the book. Thanks a lot for writing it again. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining me today. You're welcome. You're quite welcome. Thank you, too. All right. Thanks, everyone, for watching right. or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. A special thanks to all the patrons that helped to support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, Jake Otero, Mimi Stargazer, and Jean-Marie Kaplan. If you appreciate the work I'm doing here on the podcast and you'd like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through our page on patreon.com. In exchange, you can get access to bonus content that's only available to patrons of the podcast, such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the monthly forecast episodes, our monthly auspicious elections podcast, or another exclusive podcast series called the Casual Astrology Podcast, or you can even get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, visit patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. If you're looking to get an astrological consultation, we have a list of recommended astrologers at theastrologypodcast.com slash consultations. The astrologers on the list are friends of the podcast that have been featured in different episodes over the years, and they have different specialties such as natal astrology, electional astrology, synastry, rectification, or horary astrology. You can get a 10% discount when you book a consultation with one of the astrologers on our list by using the promo code ASTROLOGYPODCAST. The astrology software that we use and recommend here on the podcast is called Solar Fire for Windows, which is available for the PC at alabe.com. Use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we recommend a software program called Astro Gold for Mac OS, which is from the creators of SolarFire for PC, and it includes both modern and traditional techniques. You can find out more information at astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount. If you'd like to learn more about my approach to astrology, then I'd recommend checking out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune where I go over the history, philosophy, and techniques of ancient astrology, taking people from beginner up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. You can get a print copy of the book through Amazon or other online retailers, or there's an ebook version available through Google Books. I also recently published a new translation of the anthology of the 2nd century astrologer Vedius Valens, which is one of the most important sources for understanding the practice of ancient astrology. You can find that by searching for Vadius Valens the Anthology on Amazon or other online book retailers. If you're really looking to expand your studies of astrology, then I would recommend my Hellenistic Astrology course, which is an online course on ancient astrology where I take people through basic concepts up through intermediate and advanced techniques for reading birth charts. There's over 100 hours of video lectures as well as guided readings of ancient texts, and by the time you finish the course, you will have a strong foundation in how to read birth charts as well as make predictions. You can find out more information at courses.theastrologyschool.com. I also recently launched a new course there called the Birth Time Rectification Course, where I teach students how to figure out your birth time using astrology when the birth time is either unknown or uncertain. You can find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. Each year, the podcast releases a set of astrology calendar posters for the coming year, 
and we've just released our 2023 Planetary Alignments and Planetary Movements posters, which are now available on our website at theastrologypodcast.com store. There you can also pick up our 2023 Electional Astrology Report, where Lisa Scheim and I went through the next 12 months and we picked out the single most auspicious date for each month using the principles of Electional Astrology. You can get that at theastrologypodcast.com slash 2023 report. And finally, thanks to our sponsors, including The Mountain Astrologer Magazine, which is a quarterly astrology magazine which you can read in print or online at mountainastrologer.com. Finally, thanks also to the Northwest Astrology Conference, which is happening May 25th through the 29th, 2023, just outside of Seattle. This year's conference is going to be a hybrid conference where you can either attend online or in person. Find out more information at norwac.net.